When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, I'm Jared Halverson, and welcome back to day two of choir practice. Last week, we covered the first 48 psalms, and today we'll get up to Psalm 100, which we'll leave the last 50 for next week for our, our final dress rehearsal before we sing with the choirs above. Now, hopefully we've been singing with them all along. And if you're still struggling with the quality of your own voice, then let me reassure you that there have been singers worse than you, no matter how bad you are. Uh, one of the absolute worst might actually be Heber J. Grant, uh, who became president of the church. So obviously, you don't have to have a good vocal tone uh, to be of usefulness in the kingdom of God. There's actually some hilarious stories of a young Heber J. Grant just wanting to learn to sing. If there's one thing that he was known for, it was his dogged determination, his persistence. Uh, it got him to go from barely being able to throw a baseball from first base to second uh, to becoming an incredible baseball player. It got him from going from chicken scratches when he tried to write, some said it looked like lightning and hit the ink bottle, uh, to become an award-winning uh, penman. And when it came to singing, well, he sang and he sang and, his, and he sang. And he got a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, well, anything's better than absolute tone deaf, which is where he began. There's a great story of him riding a horseback uh, alongside Jay Golden Kimball. I think they were going to Southern Utah or Arizona or something for conferences. And uh, Heber J. Grant just wanted to practice his singing. So he said, uh, Brother Kimball, do you mind if I sing 100 hymns on the, on the ride down? And Jay Golden Kimball said, oh, sure, Heber. Probably thought he was joking. Well, Heber, Heber J. Grant didn't joke about things like that. And so after about a dozen, Jay Golden Kimball just said, Heber, I swear, if you finish the rest, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I don't think he was kidding about that. But uh, Heber J. Grant said, well, Golden, you said I could do it, and so I'm going to hold you to, my, to your word. And sure enough, he went through all hundred. Uh, practice makes perfect, not in his case, but like I said, hopefully a little bit better. There were times where he would take vo voice lessons and one time his voice, his voice coach had an office right next to a dentist's office. And while Heber was singing, people assumed the dentist was drilling because they heard this shrieking like someone was in agony. Oh no, that's just Heber J. Grant working on his scales. That's how bad it was. A, a different vocal teacher said, you know, uh, Brother Grant, I actually do think you could learn to sing. I really do. I would just prefer to be as far away from you as possible when you try. Miles and miles. That's painful. Uh, and why, was, why did, was he so persistent? Was it just to prove a point? No. It's because he knew the verse that you probably are thinking of as well from Doctrine and Covenants section 25. When Emma Smith was called by the Lord to compile the first hymn book for the church, and the Lord said to her and to all of us, For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart. Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. Remember that word, the song of the heart, not necessarily the song of the voice. And Heber J. Grant's heart 
was in the right place. He just was, he wanted his voice to catch up, at least a little. He wanted to be able to pray in that way, to lift his voice high until it reached the heavens. Oh, how can I keep from singing? That was the testimony that drove Heber J. Grant and that's driving David as he writes these psalms, is driving us as we study them. And I do pray that the Holy Ghost will infuse the words on the page with the music that ought to be playing in the background. I was grateful for the sweet spirit of last week's conversation. And I did feel to sing the song of redeeming love as we study the first 48 psalms. I pray that that same spirit will continue. And that in the back of your mind, whether you're doing it literally and playing beautiful music in the background as we study, uh, or if you just allow the, the Spirit to move your heart, how that prayer will ascend to God and it will be answered with a blessing upon our heads. Pray for that blessing as we move forward now. Well, let's pick up where we left off from last week. Psalm 48 ended in this beautiful song of Zion. And Psalm 49, we shift to a wisdom psalm. This one is trying to preach the wisdom, a, a warning, a wisdom, a, a warning of wisdom, or a wise warning, if you call it that, against trusting in wealth. And so listen to what this psalm says. The superscription, by the way, says it's to the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a group of temple singers or composers, and uh, there's a handful of hymns that were intended for them. Uh, I love that it, it's one that's addressed to them. And my prayer is that we'll be able to discern which psalms are addressed to us. Uh, depending on the situation you find yourself in, or especially the emotional state that you're in at any given moment, there will be a psalm that will give voice to what you're feeling. And this, is, this, one, one, this one was intended for the sons of Korah. So verse 1 through 3. Hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. So this message is for everyone, not just for the sons of Korah. Maybe they're the ones that they're supposed to sing it for everyone else to hear. But universal application, and here's the message. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. So he still seems to just be introducing what he's trying to get across. It's important that everyone understands this. This is true wisdom. So open your ears and get ready to hear. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> so tell me. Well, here it is. Verse 5. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels, and for heels, another translation could be wicked deceivers or the evil of my enemies. So why should I fear evil when any of that shall compass me about? In other words, why should I fear the world's wickedness? If God is with me, then it can't touch me, and there's nothing to worry about. In verse 6, they that trust in their wealth, this is the point he's been trying to make all along, and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious. A better translation of that would be costly. Do you have any idea the infinite worth of the human soul? For the worth of souls is great in the sight of God, right? Doctrine and Covenant section 18. So do you have any idea how costly redeeming that soul must be? It ceaseth forever, he says. And a better translation of that would be, it's never enough. So no matter how much you pay, however much wealth you happen to have, 
Don't count on it for redemption because your soul is worth more than that. It's worth worlds. So there, what do we learn? Why should I care for the world's wealth when it can't help me with the things that really matter? There's going to have to be a greater source of strength than the arm of flesh. There's going to have to be a, a more priceless uh, source of redemption than any of the world's wealth. Or how about verse 10? For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. So why should I care for the world's honors that so often come with the world's wealth? I can't take it with me. No wonder that we, we tend to name the land after ourselves. At least it will stay. But again, the psalmist here is almost poking fun at that, popping the bubble of, of worldliness to think about, is that where I'm laying up my treasures? As Jesus would say, where moth and rust doth corrupt. The only real treasures worth laying up are the spiritual kind. That's real wisdom. So don't trust in, in the wealth of the world. In verse 13, this their way is their folly. Yet their posterity approved their sayings, Selah. And as we learned last week, Selah is just pause, fermata, whole, whole rest. Think about that. The next time we're, we're counting our, our money instead of counting our many blessings, stop and think, will I be able to take it with me? And since the answer to that is no, what might I take with me that I should be putting my attention on instead. Uh, it's interesting the way that he describes that as folly, and yet says, eh, their posterity approved their sayings, which is even worse. Uh, when you get to a point where culture itself is so crooked that society is, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's the way to do things. Yeah, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's, that's, I've seen a bumper sticker that he who dies with the most toys wins. And yes, posterity seems to approve of those kinds of sayings. Uh, and that's tragic because the day will come where they will learn for themselves that none of those things really mattered in the eternal scheme of things. In verse 14, like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. That's what will happen to all the worldly wicked, the worldly rich, the worldly wise. They're all going to die anyway. And yet, what's the other side? The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Great phrase. In the morning? Yeah, that's when we wake up. Think resurrection morning. When the roles will have been reversed. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And so the psalmist says, Their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. That's the first becoming last. All this beauty that you acquired through life, it's consuming in the grave, and, and there's nothing left. At the funeral of a rich man, someone once asked, how much did he leave? Thinking, what, what was the inheritance? What were the, the millions or billions or whatever? And the, the correct answer to that question, how much did he leave? Someone simply pointed out, well, all of it. <laughs> Who cares how much it was? He left it all. Finally, verse 15, 
But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. So think about that too. That's what happens in the morning when we finally wake up, realizing that our redemption, which was far more costly than any worldly wealth could buy, and our resurrection, that we have no wisdom or power to be able to affect for ourselves, those can only come from God. Sin and death are the dual monsters that Jacob talked about in 2 Nephi 9. And it's only God that has the strength to slay them. So our trust has to go in him. That's the message of the 49th Psalm. The 50th is a covenant renewal liturgy. And by that we mean some kind of, at least this is what scholars believe, some kind of ceremony where people would come, present themselves to the Lord, and renew the covenants they had made with him. Sound familiar? Sound like something we do every single Sunday as we partake of the sacrament? Uh, and so to think about a sacrament hymn preparing us to renew that covenant and imagine something like Psalm 50 being sung for just such an occasion. It says here that in the superscription that it's the Psalm of Asaph. Uh, and Asaph was a Levite singer. He's also called a seer back in 2 Chronicles. And there's going to be a good handful of the Psalms that we'll study today that come from Asaph. He's a good soul. Verse 1 through 3, this Psalm begins. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. With that imagery, you get a sense of this is the God of the universe that we're singing about, the king of creation. Sunrise, sunset, can you hear the fiddler on the roof singing? Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. What a perfect description of the city of God. Home to the temple of God, the perfection of beauty. And what is providing the light there? God is. The book of Revelation will say that, that there's no need for sun or moon or stars because God is there. Christ is there. The light of the world is present. And so no need for lesser illumination. Keep reading. Our God shall come. The chapter heading suggests that this is referring to the second coming. So think of this. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. Think of the chaos of the last days. In fact, you don't have to think about it. We're living them, right? And so to think of the fire consuming before, tempestuousness as far as the eye can see. Well, no wonder we need the perfection of beauty. No wonder we need the coming of the Prince of Peace. That's what we're praying for. Christ will come to calm that storm. In verse 4, he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. The second coming, in a way, is a preliminary judgment day. We speak, it of the great, uh, we speak of it as the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, there's passing judgment. For whom will it be great? For whom will it be dreadful? But what are we to do during that time period? He tells us, gather my saints together unto me. Notice the gathering of Israel has a destination, and that destination is Christ. Gather them to me. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. Think of that phrase. Who's he gathering to himself first so that they can then go forth and gather all the rest on both sides of the veil back to God? Those who have made a covenant with God 
and a covenant that required sacrifice. All of the oxen and sheep <laughs> that were offered throughout the history of the Old Testament were just types and shadows of the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and types and shadows of laying the animal within us on the altar, as Elder Maxwell used to say, to give God our broken heart and contrite spirit. And sometimes it requires that brokenness of heart to, to break the things our hearts had been set upon, uh, to break that connection that was keeping us from truly connecting with Christ. If we can do that, if we can sacrifice whatever it is that makes it difficult to keep our covenants. This, remember, this is a covenant renewal psalm. So think about that the next time you partake of the sacrament. This coming Sunday, ponder, are there things I need to let go for me to truly keep this covenant next week, better than I kept it this week? What can I sacrifice? Even if it's just a little more of my time or better said, a little more of my heart. Give it to God. Yeah, if you think about the great verse in Doctrine and Covenants 97, which is also a temple-related text, and so many of these psalms are exactly that, the Lord in section 97 verse 8 speaks of those who are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice. And that's exactly what the Lord is asking. So in some ways, that's what he's getting at, right? This is all about sacrifice, right? Well, not quite. Look at verse 8. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. You get a sense of the Lord almost laughing at the, the token offerings we make. Like, really? Uh, I, I don't need it. You're offering me a bull? I have cattle upon a thousand hills. <laughs> You're taking a, a lamb without blemish. I'm the good shepherd and I have an infinite number of sheep. I, I don't need your tithes. I don't need your offerings. I don't need the things that you are giving me because I could take them if I wanted. It all belongs to me already. Well, everything but your will, that is. Everything but your heart and spirit. So no wonder those are the things that God is really after. So the sacrament and the sacrifice that goes into it, it's not about giving the, the temporal or tangible thing to God. That is simply, simply a token and a sign to point us to deeper, to deeper offerings, to real sacrifices. Everything else is already his anyway. You see it in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And like I said, it's the same with our tithes and offerings. Uh, if I wanted it, I, I, could, I could find other ways to, to provide for the church, believe me. Uh, and don't think that you're lighting these animals on fire so that the smoke will ascend to heaven so that in some way you're transferring that, that food, that, that drink, the, the meat offerings, the drink offerings, all that you're giving. Yes, the smoke is rising to heaven, but it's not to feed me. You're not airmailing this animal sacrifice. I don't need any of those things. But you need to give them to me. This is for your sake, 
I know sacrifice doesn't seem oh, self-centered, and it shouldn't. But when you realize how much more you receive than what you give, then it's not a sacrifice at all. It's an investment with a return on investment that is truly out of this world. Trust in that. So when you keep your covenants by sacrifice, realize that you are still coming out infinitely ahead. But think about this. If God doesn't want our sacrifices, if they don't really do anything specifically for God, then what does he want from us? We said broken heart and contrite spirit already, but look at verse 14 and 15. Offer unto God thanksgiving. Pay thy vows unto the Most High. That's all he asks for, his, our gratitude and our obedience. He says similar things in the Doctrine and Covenants when he describes his pet, fee, pet peeves. Yes, God, I guess, has some. Because he says, in nothing doth man offend God. In nothing against none is his wrath kindled, except those who do not acknowledge his hand in all things and who don't keep his commandments. So again, the sin of ingratitude and the sin of disobedience, that we don't recognize the source of every good blessing and the source of every direction that will keep us on the straight and narrow path. And so here, what's he asking? Offer that, your thanksgiving and your vows. Pay your vows. Do what you promised you would do. And then this, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. You see, sacrifice is meant to forge a relationship with God, not to put God somehow in our debt. After all, he doesn't need anything that we have to offer him anyway. And so if we're creating this relationship, we'll put it this way. You've probably heard it said that we tend to love whatever it is that we sacrifice for. Or we love whomever it is that we sacrifice for. And as I serve my spouse or as I serve my children, as I serve my fellow man, I end up loving them. Well, imagine then as I sacrifice for God, what does my heart do? It follows whatever I gave to him. I'm giving him my heart. And no wonder he loves us so much since he sacrificed all things for our behalf. Meanwhile, what about the wicked? Look at verse 16 and 17. But unto the wicked God saith, what hast thou to do? In other words, what authority do you have to declare my statutes or that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee. He's asking the wicked here, what right do you have to make rules when you won't take <laughs> the rules that I give you and actually live them? What, who do you think you are? And why should I take your word for anything when you won't take God's word and accept it into your life? Well, God then spends the most, much of the rest of this psalm calling out some of the evils of the wicked. And then he says in verse 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. I didn't come after you. I didn't come down hard. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. That's a fascinating passage. As God keeps silence. We saw this last week. That justice can be counted on. Just not exactly justice's timing. Okay, uh, the justice will have its day. Uh, it always gets its man. But sometimes it, justice is slow. Sometimes the wheels turn slowly. And part of that is to provide us a test of faith. Because if every act of obedience 
received an immediate blessing, and if every act of disobedience received an immediate curse, then oh, even a little child could figure out that one. That's Pavlov's dog. That's it. Okay? And God wants to train us to be agents rather than objects. And if we are to be valiant agents rather than just obedient objects, then we're going to have to learn to wait and see if God really meant it that the righteous would ultimately be blessed and the wicked would ultimately be cursed. What, how am I going to live in the meantime? But the way he says that, or during that middle stage when you're wondering, thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. So interesting. God's up there going, you really think you're like me? Or better said, that I'm like you? That I'm selfish or vicious, that I would condone the kinds of behaviors that you're indulging in? Uh, no, that's not me. And in fact, it's not supposed to be you. I'm a God who created man in my own image. Sadly, you've become men and women who are trying to create me in your own image. That's actually a pretty good description of moral relativism, which is one of the reigning isms of our day. You be you and just be authentic and whatever you think is right is fine. There's no absolute truth. There's only truths with lowercase t's. And it's your truth. And take it and live it however you choose. Well, what have I just done? I've created a God out of myself. Or I'm assuming that God altogether thinks like I do. And that's a dangerous place to go. Please, my friends, don't mistake God's silence for agreement. Sometimes he simply wants to see how we'll act as we wait to see how he's going to weigh in on things. You see, he's already weighed in on things in the, <laughs> from the beginning. We need to follow his commandments. When we don't, there is still hope, thankfully through the atonement of Christ. And that's what we see in Psalm 51. This is one of the more beautiful Psalms that you'll see because of the context out of which it grows. Remember we saw at the beginning of last week's lesson that the Psalm that David wrote when he was fleeing from Absalom, there was such feeling behind that because of what he was going through. And any of you who have wayward children, that Psalm hopefully resonated deep in your own souls. Well, for any of us who have broken hearts because we've broken them against the commandments. If any of us have contrite spirits because we're trying to repent of our sins, then Psalm 51 is another one of the most beautiful examples of godly sorrow you'll ever see. Back when we studied the book of Ezra, I mentioned that, that when I was in some disciplinary councils with people who didn't feel godly sorrow and didn't understand the depths of, of what their sin cost the Lord, I would share with them Ezra chapter 9 and 10, because there's an illustration of godly sorrow. Well, if you needed another one, Psalm 51 is about as good as the Psalms will give you. And it's beautiful. If you look at the superscription, you'll see why. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this Psalm is written in the aftermath of adultery and murder from someone that throughout the story of David is described as one who has a heart like God's. This is not a wicked man that is past feeling and he acts out of his own viciousness and selfishness 
and he's used to it. That's not David at all. This is a lapse of judgment uh, and a denial of his own character. But he came to his senses and he realizes what he's done. He's been hiding this for a long time until Nathan comes and tells this incredible parable of the ewe lamb and in David's anger and righteous indignation against a, an anything but good shepherd. When Nathan says, David, thou art the man, you just condemned yourself. Imagine David's house of cards falling apart and him looking himself in the, in the mirror and realizing, I am that man. And I condemned the man in the parable. For a long time now, my conscience has been condemning me. And what am I supposed to do now? Well, a man who turned to the harp to calm the troubled soul of Saul now turns to the harp to calm his own. And he writes these words, and the entire psalm is so moving. You want to see godly sorrow? Here it is. Verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Notice David gives no excuse for what he's done. He gives no justification. He has none. And he's not trying to minimize his own sins. He's simply throwing himself at the feet of mercy personified. He is completely in the Lord's hands. I have no leg to stand on. And so I kneel and beg you for your forgiveness. In verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. I Try as I might, I can't get the stain out of my soul. So please wash me and do a thorough job. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. There was no escape from this guilty conscience, which proves again that David is not past feeling. If you have a troubled conscience because you've done something bad, that should reassure you that you are not bad. Because of the way you feel about it. There's something ironic about sin and repentance. It takes a... This, this struck me once when I was doing some counseling in a bishopric with a couple that was about to get divorced. And there was a lot of anger as I sat down with the two of them and just tried to help them navigate some things. And, and to see how mad they were at each, at each other, I realized, wow, to divorce the way... God does allow for divorce. Uh, but it's usually because of the hardness of our hearts, right? We talked about this in prior lessons, and, and President Faust probably has the best quotes on what actually justifies divorce. And I'll leave you in, in the Lord's hands if you have to make that gut-wrenching decision. But if you do, you better be in a good spot to be able to make that decision. The irony I learned as I sat with this couple is you kind of have to love each other to end a marriage. And it's like, wait, what? If you loved each other, you wouldn't be ending the marriage. Well, true you know, 999 times out of a thousand. But to, to realize that you're ending this relationship and to do it rightly, you can't, have, you can't be motivated by all these horrible negative things. It's, it's, it's realizing that despite everyone, despite your best efforts, this relationship is irredeemable. And that's the word that... Well, that's the way that President Faust described it. 
uh, there's nothing more that can be done. Now, I, I don't want to get sidetracked from the, the repentance that we're seeing here, but it struck me as I sat with this couple that there's something similar when it comes to repentance. To repent, you have to be a good person. But that's the irony. Wait, if I was a good person, I wouldn't need to repent. Well, yeah, I guess, but there's only one person that good who needed no repentance. So flip it around, and it's not that if, if I was good, I wouldn't need repentance. It's because I'm good, I want to repent. Because I'm good, I realize that what I did was out of character, and it was wrong. And so I come before God asking for that forgiveness. I acknowledge my transgressions. That's the beauty of confession. I've said this before too. A confession is an acknowledgement that you agree with the rule even though you broke it. I'm not rebelling against it. I was simply weak and didn't live up to it. But by confessing that sin and acknowledging that I fell short of the standard, I'm acknowledging that the standard ought to hold and I'm going to do my I'm going to do better at holding myself to it with the grace of God. In verse 4, David says to the Lord, against thee, thee only have I sinned. Which isn't exactly true since David had sinned against Bathsheba, David had sinned against Uriah, David had sinned against his own best self. So what could he mean by this? Against you only, God, have I sinned? and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Despite the fact that sin really does affect people in all directions, maybe what David is getting at there is acknowledging that God alone will be the judge. You're the only one who truly understands Bathsheba's feelings and experience. You're the only one that knows Uriah's heart and what he went through. That scares me to realize that the atonement of Jesus Christ makes him the victim of my every sin. This is, goes back to what David learned from Abigail when she asks that Nabal's sins be placed upon her to hopefully soften David's heart towards Nabal because it would naturally soften towards her. I'm going to leave all of this as if you were the only person I did anything against. And then you, in your infinite knowledge and your perfect condescension, will be able to do right by all of us. I've sometimes used the analogy of a string of Christmas lights because those seem to be the most impossible to untangle. I hate untangling anything, string or extension cords or, or you name it, but Christmas lights are the absolute worst. And I have learned that when I am trying to untangle some, some big mass of mess, I do pretty good until I realize, oh great, all I did was untangle this portion of the strand and I just moved the tangle somewhere else. So by fixing this part of the string, I just made the other parts of it even worse. Only Jesus can untangle the entire strand without just passing down the problem. Because only he understands the experience of, of everyone on it. Every single Christmas light. He, un he understands. That, that was the gift of his condescension. 
Now, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we could read that and say, oh, now is he finally making excuses? Hey, I, I just came this way, okay? It's your fault. You made me this way. I mean, we sometimes say, oh, the devil made me do it, which I think is giving Satan way too much credit. But sometimes we flip it around and go, well, the Lord made me do it. And we usually don't say it in those terms, but we sometimes just chalk it up to our natural weakness. Uh, the natural man, we call it after all. And so, I mean, I can't really be guilty if, if I was made this way. Well, we were made this way in order to find ourselves in a position where we would have to turn to God. To unmake us, and better said, to remake us after his image. And so here he is pleading, I'm powerless to change myself. I can't do it. Because I was shapen in iniquity. Uh, and so maybe that's why he's asking us to break the heart. Again, if we think about God as the, as the potter and us as the vessel, and it's just starting to get lopsided, and there's nothing we can do about it. Especially if we become hardened in our ways, and now it, we're, we're not malleable enough that God can remake. Well, what do you do? Is it completely over? No, but that pot might have to be smashed down ground into powder, then just add living water again and start fresh. And with a broken heart that we offer to God, God can do exactly that. He's the potter, we are the clay. Sometimes it's just more living water is necessary. I mean, look at what God is after in verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. You see, it's more than outward obedience that God is after. Because that's mere compliance. And what he really wants is true conversion. So it's then the inward parts, the hidden places, where the gospel shines its light to those nooks and crannies that we were hoping no one would never know about. And God almost turns them inside out so that he can make a real lasting change in us. Elder Bednar has taught some beautiful things about this, that it's not a matter of clenching our fists and gritting our teeth and just uh, willing ourselves into obedience. No, that'll never do. It's submitting. It's allowing the Spirit of God to remake us after His image. And, and that is a process. The way Jacob described it, it's that we, God is asking us to do all of these things simply that we might reconcile our will to the will of God. That's having truth in the inward parts. That's a mighty change. In verse 7, he asks, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. More famous is the Isaiah phrase that though my sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Well, here David is asking for something similar. Cleanse me, wash me, purge me, and specifically with hyssop. Remember we talked about this in Leviticus and in Exodus. In Leviticus, when it spoke of the, the cleansing of the leper, and boy, did David feel leprous in this moment. I am rotting from the inside out. And my sin is gnawing at my soul, and there's nothing I can do about it on my own. So please, God, purge me. And you remember in the cleansing of the leper, when they took scarlet and hyssop 
and cedar, the symbols of the Passover, and dipped the bird with those symbols into the blood of the bird that had been slain. Think about the blood of the Passover lamb. And what was the paintbrush they used to get that blood onto the door, posts and lintel? To say, my home is now covered by the blood of the lamb, they used hyssop. It was hyssop that was used to lift vinegar to the thirsting Christ when he was suffering on Calvary at the cross. And so hyssop is a perfect symbol here for all of those elements, atonement and, and crucifixion and redemption. Purge me with hyssop. In verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. It, evidently, David was not hearing any of that and hadn't for quite some time. That the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Have you ever felt so low that it feels like you've been gut punched or that your bones themselves are broken and all you're asking for from God, can I have a little happiness again? Remember he said it earlier, that my sins are right in front of my face. I can't get away from them. I can't hide my iniquity. Will you cover my nakedness instead so that I can have joy and gladness again? He says, hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all mine iniquities. If there's one thing I think we could see pretty clearly in David as a youth, it was his joy and his faith, and nothing seemed to faze him. He wasn't afraid of Goliath, didn't worry about the lion and the bear. It's just, it's all good. And just this happy, faithful, valiant, courageous, you name the good attribute, David seemed to have it. A heart like the Lord's, right? And yet all of that is gone. And so to think about him realizing what he's lost, and I'll do anything to regain it. I just want to find joy again. In verse 10, so he pleads, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Oh, the help that he needs, it's not going to come from himself. It's going to have to come from outside himself. And that new creation will come from the Creator, who will make, with, make of him someone new, a new heart, a clean heart. He says, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Those were things that he knew he couldn't afford to lose. Please, Father, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. And I worry that we sometimes take for granted the joy of our salvation. Thinking that, oh, this is just how I'm naturally supposed to feel. Well, not if you're naturally the natural man or woman. And once you have experiences where that joy is taken from you, what will you do to get it back? In verse 13, as David keeps pleading for forgiveness, he then makes this promise. Then, so once forgiveness comes, he has faith that it can. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. There's something beautiful about receiving forgiveness that makes you want to go cry repentance <laughs> in every ear. And it's not a matter of guilting someone. No, it's the exact opposite. It's understanding the joy of my salvation's back. I'm feeling it again. And whatever it is you're feeling because of your sins, it can be gone. It can be wiped away. You can be purged with hyssop. You can be white as snow. You can be happy again.
as my wife and son work in addiction recovery, they've said that often those who are back working to help other people are people that are in recovery themselves. It's why often the best oh, AA counselors, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, or people that are there as mentors and friends for others, are people who have been through the program themselves, and they're staying sober by helping other people get sober. And they, are, they approach others with understanding, with empathy, with compassion. No judgment, because I was in your shoes, and but by the grace of God go I. And David is feeling the same. If you can just pull me out of this pit, I will... <laughs> Let the world know what you're capable of to give them hope as well. I will teach transgressors thy ways. And we all can do exactly that. In verse 14, he pleads, deliver me from blood guiltiness. I wonder if that one is referring to Uriah's death. O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. There's sincere appreciation and adoration. If you will simply take away my condemnation, I will thank thee, praise thee, honor thee from this day forward. Please give me another chance to do that. He then asks in verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Like we saw back in the 50th Psalm, <laughs> you have mountains worth of sheep and goats and, and cattle. What could I possibly give? So it's not sacrifice that you're asking for, or I would give it to you. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. Now he's, he sees it clearly. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. That's what God really wants. And that's what we can offer him. Finally, in verse 18 and 19, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. You see, I'm the king. And I fear that my own mistakes will cost. It's one thing to cost me the kingdom. But to, to make the kingdom bear the cost, that's too much for me to bear. So please do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Please keep my people safe. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. You see, this is not just him alone. And we have to realize that even in what we consider our most secret sins, they are affecting people. How can they not? They're affecting us and often the way we treat people is affected by the presence or absence of the Holy Ghost in our own lives. And so here he is praying for his people. And where does that end? At the altar. His focus on sacrifice of the right things. His focus on the house of God, as it always seemed to be for David. Again, my friends, if you ever feel, better yet, if you ever don't feel, sorrow for your sins. It's interesting the way people are wired. Some people are too hard on themselves and others are too soft on themselves. It's, we're looking for the Goldilocks zone as usual. 
And if you're too hot or too cold, then maybe you need to get a little more mercy or a little more justice into your life. And if you're the cold type and you do things, and maybe you're not completely past feeling, but it doesn't seem to phase you. We brag about having a high pain threshold. Please don't brag about having a high guilt threshold. Like, oh yeah, I can feel super guilty and it doesn't affect me at all. Yikes. But if you're anything like that, then pray that the 51st Psalm can show you what it looks like. Someone righteous enough to repent in the right way. That's David. His heart was like the Lord's. And after the time when it wasn't, he wanted to take that heart and break it down to give to God so that God could renew in him a new heart. I don't know of many places in Scripture that portray repentance quite as movingly as Psalm 51. If we truly repent and receive the true forgiveness that God is so quick to, to offer us, then Psalm 52 almost follows naturally because this is a psalm about true confidence. Oh, you, then shall your confidence wax strong in the presence of God. That's Doctrine and Covenants 121, right? With a superscription here, Psalm 52. Also, this is a psalm of David. It comes from a different time period in his life, an earlier one. It's when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul and said unto him, David is come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, you remember this story? If you don't, I don't blame you. It's one that we would want to forget because Doeg was as, as awful as they come. Remember when David was fleeing from Saul and he's got some men with him and he's, they're famished. And they go to Ahimelech, the priest, and ask him for any food he might have. And unfortunately, the only food he's got is the, sh the showbread. Uh, are, are we allowed to do that? I mean, the leftover sacrament, what do we do with that if you're a, a teacher preparing the sacrament? Well, if you remember that story, Ahimelech gave the showbread to David because they were worthy of it. Uh, it was, and an ox was in the mire, so to speak. But Doeg happened to be there and David realized it or recognized that and then later realized, oh no, because if Doeg is a servant of Saul and will go and report tell on Ahimelech to Saul, then what's he going to do? And what did he do? Saul sent him back and Doeg slew Ahimelech and all the other priests. This was absolutely devastating. So what does David say in this psalm at that time period? Verse 1 through 3, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Oh, it's going to outlast your ill-gotten gains. It's going to, you'll have to pay the piper. You're not going to outlive him. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. And that's exactly the kind of sharp tongue oh, that went back to Saul to, to out Ahimelech for something that he'd done that was good, not bad. Unfortunately, look at the next line. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Salah. So think about that, even if your name isn't Doeg the Edomite. Are we ever guilty of similar things? David, on the other hand, verse 8 and 9. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Remember the menorah, the candle stand? It was made to look like a tree, giving forth light because of the olive oil that was in each of its cups. 
If he is a green olive tree in the house of God, there's David, there's the candle stand. And right across from the showbread, he'd be looking across at it. And that was what Ahimelech gave to us. Poor Ahimelech. He's in a better place though. And I pray I can remain in a good place with God myself. Here in the house of the Lord, a green olive tree. He says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Mercy for me, mercy for Ahimelech, perhaps even mercy for Saul and Doeg if they'll repent. I will praise thee forever, David says, because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. Compare that, beginning and ending there in Psalm 52. Where is, is your confidence coming from? From your own wickedness that you're boasting in? Or are you boasting in your God, knowing that confidence only comes through Christ. 53, the 53rd Psalm then follows it with a song of trust. It's still a Psalm of David. In some ways, it's almost identical to Psalm 14. But this one uses God instead of Lord as the the object of its praise. In verse 1 and 2, this is the part of the Psalm that I want to focus on. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. We saw that in that 14th Psalm too. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. But then notice this. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. And like we said last week of Psalm 14, I'll repeat here with Psalm 53. God is walking a tightrope giving just enough evidence of his existence to make our agnosticism seem a little unfounded. Foolish is the word he uses. But also not to give us so much evidence that he has no reason to look down from heaven to see if there's anybody seeking for him because the search uh, was short-circuited. It's obvious. There's no faith required. That's what happened in 35.1, when the day-night day happened with no darkness. All the unbelievers that were persecuting the believers, they went from doubt to perfect knowledge, and they never got to pass through faith along the way. Oh, my friends, take advantage of your days of doubt. Take advantage of times when fools out there are saying there is no God. Uh, Or people out there just doubt, that are doubting for whatever reason, are suggesting there's no way you could ever know. Well, take advantage of that time because someday the world will know without any doubt even possible. But like what happened to those in 35.1, if you go from disbelief to perfect knowledge, <laughs> great. You're, uh, you have a fine grasp of the obvious, as they say. But you never exercise the spiritual muscle that's required of faith. If there's the possibility of doubt, then there's also the possibility of faith. So choose faith. Someday it will be eclipsed by perfect knowledge. But in the meantime, God is looking down from heaven upon the children of men. And he's just wondering if he'll see any that believe. You remember Jesus' question from Luke 18. When the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith on the earth? I hope so. We're at a time period where we're able to exercise it. So let's exercise it well. In 
The 54th Psalm, notice the superscription. This is a Psalm of David when the Zithims came and said to Saul, doth not David hide himself with us? So back to the same time period when David is on the run, trying to escape uh, Saul's javelin. And as he's hiding out with people, I mean, he tries the people of the Philistines here, he's trying, trying the people of Ziph, but those Zithim, that's the plural, uh, the Ziphites, we could call them, come out and let Saul know, oh, he's around here somewhere. So come, come and get him. So what's David praying for? Verse 1, save me, O God, by thy name. Judge me by thy strength. Notice the thy is in that verse. Salvation is more about God than it is about David. It's thy name and thy strength, not mine. Lehi actually would use similar language to Jacob uh, when he said that, Jacob, I know that you will be saved because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Not because of your righteousness, that's never enough. But because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer, it will be more than sufficient. That his grace is sufficient. For the humble. And here David is acknowledging the same, thy name, thy strength. And so he, can, he keeps praying, verse 2, hear my prayer, O God. And then how's this for sacred language? Give ear to the words of my mouth. This is a prayer for his prayer. <laughs> so it, I've said this before, does a, does a prayer ever need an opening prayer? Now, if we're supposed to pray before we do anything, that's what Nephi said in 2 Nephi 32. Does that include prayer? Do I need to pray to start my prayer? Uh, David does. Hear my prayer. I am praying. Give ear to the words of my mouth. I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the proper spirit. And I'm inviting thee, God, to come. Please come and listen to what I'm about to say. This is our chance to try to get the divine attention so that we can give him fully our attention and fully give him our praise. Beyond that, then it's up to God. And David knows that. He's okay with that. Just hear my words and do with them what you will. Psalm 55 is also a psalm of David. I love verse 12 to begin. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, David says, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. You see, I'm, I'm okay with enemies because they're enemies. I know where they're coming from. Uh, it's, it's the others that I'm worried about. I can't hide myself from them because I don't know that I need to. You see what he says next. It was thou, a man mine equal, my guide, mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. You see what David is devastated by here is not the opposition of an enemy. He's used to that. It's the betrayal of a friend. We talked about that last week with that beautiful verse that resonates with the story of Jesus and Judas, that we broke bread together. And yet you lifted up the heel against me. Well, in this case, we took sweet counsel together. Even sadder, we walked unto the house of God in company. 
Picture David there in the city of David, in Mount Zion, where the Temple Mount he is preparing. He can't build the temple yet. That will be for his son Solomon. But here it is. I can see it in vision as I'm piling up the, the supplies and the materials that will be required for my son to use. And that's where we would go together. Sacred places. A sacred relationship that you've broken. Now, scholars believe that this is most likely him referring to Ahithophel. And if you remember Ahithophel, he was the one, he was a counselor of David's. Uh, that's why we took sweet counsel together. This is a wise advisor. But when Absalom rebels against David and David flees, Ahithophel doesn't follow David out. He stays behind with Absalom. If you remember when there was another wise advisor, Hushai, if I remember correctly, ran out with David and David said, actually, you could serve me better back in the palace. You can be my double agent. And hopefully you are an advisor on par with Ahitophel. And perhaps you can counteract the counsel that he gives my son. And sure enough, that's exactly what Hushai does. But what I, what I love about the Psalms, especially the ones written by David, is it gives us a glimpse into his heart. We didn't get to see his heart quite as clearly in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel. But here in Psalms, we get to see the emotion behind the action, and what's moving him at this time. Sorrow over the the failings of a friend and one that we used to go into the temple together with. If you have loved ones that have fallen away from the faith, people, old mission companions, and we served together, I rejoiced at your testimony. You know some things about them that perhaps they've forgotten about themselves. Don't guilt trip them with things like Psalm 55, but perhaps use the spirit of Psalm 55 to motivate you to reach out in kindness and try to rekindle a relationship. That was not possible for David and Ahitophel. I think he would have forgiven him if he'd had the chance, but Ahitophel, if you remember, when his counsel to Absalom was later rejected, thanks to Hushai, Ahitophel went out and hung himself. And that would have been devastating for David as well. Come to think of it, talk about a type and shadow of Christ. If David is the Christ figure and Ahitophel is the Judas figure, well, there was a hanging at the end of both of those ordeals. So think of Judas betraying Christ. Think of Peter denying Christ. And most personally, think about you and me lifting up the heel against Jesus, with whom we walked in the house of God. Hopefully that gives us pause before we go against him. If you're a Shakespeare fan, you probably can't help but think of Etu Brute. And in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, to hear what Mark Anthony says about Brutus, someone with whom Caesar had taken sweet counsel together and gone through Rome, not the house of God, but through the houses of Caesar, this famous statement from Shakespeare, this was the most unkindest cut of all. The cut in Caesar's robe that Mark Antony had put there. 
For when the noble Caesar saw him stab, ingratitude, more strong than traitor's arms, quite vanquished him. Then burst his mighty heart, and in his mantle muffling up his face, even at the base of Pompey's statue, which all the while ran blood, great Caesar fell. Such powerful words. Ingratitude was even stronger than treason, because it's coming from a friend. In verse 21 and 2, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter. No wonder he was such a good advisor, Ahitophel. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. And that is a perfect description of the pain of betrayal, of gossip, of backbiting, of being evil spoken of. And so what's David say? Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Oh, moved out of the place of righteousness by the, the failings of a friend. Moved to, to want to avenge themselves of, against their enemy. No, it's, it wasn't your enemy. It was a friend. Let it go. But what do I do with all this anger and this bitterness and this frustration? You cast that burden upon the Lord. And if there was ever anyone who knows how to pick it up and take it away, it's him because he's been through worse. I think it was Parley P. Pratt once was offended by someone and he turned to Joseph Smith. And Joseph, who knew a thing or two about being offended by friends, simply said to Parley, oh, just walk such things beneath your feet. Just get over it. Just leave it behind. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He'll take care of things. He always does. In verse, excuse me, chapter 56, Psalm 56, this is a petition for help. The superscription says it's a miktam of David. And again, that's one of those Hebrew words that we leave in Hebrew because we don't know what to, what to make of it in English. Probably some kind of musical instrument or some kind of uh, instruction on how the music is to be played. But this is a miktam of David, some type of song of his, when the Philistines took him in Gath. So again, it's providing some historical context. And if you remember what's happening, uh, David is afraid of Saul and his javelin. And man, I'd rather go back to Goliath's hometown than go face Saul in his hometown. And so he's there. But again, the books of Samuel gives us, give us David's actions and the book of Psalms gives us his emotions. And what's he feeling here? First, he mentions his enemies all around him, but then says in verse three and four, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me, whether that flesh is Goliath's flesh or the Philistines' flesh or Saul's flesh or any arm of flesh. I know the arm of God is stronger. Uh, this is again from our hymn book. The Lord is my light. Then why should I fear? David's singing it. He then says in verse 8, Thou tellest my wanderings, and he has been wandering for safety, looking for safety. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? That's powerful. God can name all of our sorrows. He can count every tear. Because he shed his own right alongside us. And he wiped them all away. One by one by one. 
No wonder he can put them in a bottle. No wonder he writes every, every heartache in his book. So David says, when I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is with me. I can picture Paul gaining strength from that kind of conviction, as he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the sense that I get from David's psalm here. He says similar words in verse 11. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. And that describes David's attitude perfectly. So he says in verse 13, For thou hast delivered my soul from death. You did it at the hands of Goliath. You did it at the hands of Saul. And now I'm here in the hands of the Philistines. I know you'll do it here as well. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling? That slippery potential always seems to come up in the Psalms. So deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Notice he's praying, don't just save me from ultimate death. That's part of it. But save me from falling into proximate death along the way. That's the keep my feet from falling. And as we've said before, the kind of medicine that our great healer offers us is not just the restorative, curative medicine you, you, he gives after the fact. That's the deliver my soul from death. It's also the preventative medicine that we take to keep us from having our feet fall or slide beneath us. Psalm 57 is next, and it's a plea for mercy. The superscription again describes it as a miktam of David. When he fled from Saul in the cave, that's probably a story that you do remember, when he cuts off the hem of his robe and has evidence now, I could have cut off a lot more than that. Uh, but even that made me feel guilty, lifting up my hand against the Lord's anointed. Please live up to that anointing, Saul. Well, what is David pleading for in this psalm? Verse 1 be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. No wonder David is being merciful unto Saul there in the cave. With what measure you meet, it shall be meted unto you again. God, please treat me the way I'm treating Saul. For my soul trusteth in thee, he says. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I love that David is hiding in the shadows of a cave. But what really makes him feel safe is knowing that he's in the shadow of God's wings. His arms of mercy encompassing him. In verse 4, my soul is among lions. And Saul, head and shoulders above the rest, would have felt like one. I lie even among them that are set on fire. And, oh, Saul's wrath was kindled against David, though David had done nothing to deserve it. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Talk about powerful imagery. Have you ever felt like that? That there are lions around you? That there is fire burning all around? That there are enemies with spears and arrows and swords bearing down upon you? Then what do you do? You turn to God for safety. How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? There's the shadow of my wings. Come and make a refuge. No wonder 
David is praying for exactly that. I'm going to God for safety. And he says in verse 7, and I love this phrase, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Now, yes, his, that means his heart is fixed in its place. I'm not going to turn against thine anointed. I'm not going to turn away from thee just because of the trials that I find myself in. No, my heart is set in stone. It's established. It's rooted. It is fixed. But I also love in English what we say about fixed. Oh, it's not broken. And David's broken heart is fixed by the Lord as well. David keeps singing in Psalm 58. And this time he prays for divine vengeance. But notice if he's asking for God to avenge him, it means he's not doing it himself. And that was part of his experience in the cave as well. So throughout this brief psalm, David is asking the Lord to take care of things, to take care of his enemies. And he says in verse 10 and 11, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. In other words, justice is served after all, even though it may be a little slow in coming. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Justice will come, don't you worry. That is a little stronger language than what we're used to, though, from David. That let's wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. I'm not the one shedding that blood, but once God chooses to, then I can kind of click my heels with joy. I'm a little worried about that. Uh, then again, if you're living in an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of a time period, then I'm so impressed with David just to let God take care of things. And justice and judgment and vengeance belongeth to the Lord, not to me. But since we do live in a, a gospel age rather than a mosaic time, perhaps we should be praying instead, not wash our feet in the blood of the wicked, but please wash my feet in the blood of the Lamb. Perhaps I've done some things to deserve what people have said about me or done against me, and I pray thou wilt forgive me and even forgive them. May we all be washed in the blood of the Lamb as he comes to judge the earth. That might be a, a more Christ-like way to rephrase the 58th Psalm. But on to the 59th. The superscription of this one says that it's a, another miktam of David. And the context... When Saul sent, and they watched the house to kill him. Remember the story when David has married Michal, Saul's daughter, but he knows, um, I'm not really loved by the in-laws. I'm not feeling it. Uh, and so I'm worried. And Michal realizes that, yeah, my dad's got something against you. He's got some pride issues. And so let me help you escape. And she lets him out of the window and then sets up a dummy in the bed so that they'll think that David is still at home. That's the time period when David sings this psalm. Look at verse 3 and 4. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me. And no one was mightier than Saul at the time. But notice the next phrase. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold. David had done nothing to deserve this persecution. And so I'm grateful that he could say that. It's not for my transgression. It's not for my sin. But can, can we claim the same level of innocence? Or when we ask, Lord, is it I? 
Is the answer a yes? I pray we can be less deserving of bad things we go through. But David, like I said, doesn't take matters into his own hands. He leaves it in the Lord's. And so he says in verse 9, Because of his strength will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Prevent me? Is God holding him back? This again goes back to what we saw with Abigail. And David realizes that you have been helpful because you've kept me from avenging myself of mine enemy. And that is a mercy you have shown me by letting God show his justice to the guilty. It's interesting how that works. There is an example of, of mercy on the part of God. When, mercy to us when we let him show his justice to other people. I get that sense at the beginning of Jacob chapter 3, by the way, after Jacob has chewed out the Nephite men for their uh, immoralities. And then he turns to the Nephite women and children and comforts and reassures them in chapter 3. And what I get a sense there is God will take care of the wicked with justice. And at the same time, he will take care of the, the pure and the innocent with mercy. Even the same idea in Doctrine and Covenant section 64, when we're talking about forgiveness, and it says, well, you ought to say in your heart, let God judge between thee and me and, record thee, uh, and reward thee according to thy deeds. I always think of David and Saul when I think of that verse, because that's exactly what David did. Uh, and David and Nabal and David and so many others. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. And when it says, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds, God does that. If, if their deeds deserve justice, God will give it to them. And if you deserve mercy, then God will give it to you as well. He'll take care of both sides of that. Then turning to Psalm 60, the superscription, Miktam of David, to teach. And when's he teaching? When he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah. Okay, that doesn't help me much. When Joab returned and smote of Edom in the Valley of Salt, 12,000. Okay, so at some time period of war, Joab was... Uh, David's chief general, right? And he's fighting the Edomites at this time period. And David is trying to teach. Hmm. Teaching his troops. Uh, think about rallying the troops and giving them a big pump-up speech between, before the big battle. Think of a coach if you were an athlete and the kinds of pre-game talks and pep talks that they would give in the locker room. And this is a powerful teaching moment from David. And I love the lesson. Verse 3 and 4. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. Are we aware of what we're up against here, men? We should be, but we'd also, we should also be aware of, of him who is on our side. See, what I'm trying to teach you is trust. So keep reading. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah. So think about that. Think about the banner. High on the mountaintop, a banner is unfurled, an ensign to the nations. This is like the royal insignia. And as long as it is waving above us, then we know that we have not been vanquished by the enemy. And that's, I mean, this is Moroni in the title of liberty. Here is this standard that has been lifted, a banner to those that fear God. Remember the great statement from Joseph Smith. The standard of truth has been erected, 
No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame. But the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent, till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. Oh yes, God has commanded us hard things. And sometimes it seems like we drink the wine of astonishment when we realize all that God is asking us to accomplish. But he's at the helm. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is our chief captain. And if we'll simply follow him into battle, then what have we to fear? Yeah, teach the troops. In verse 6, God hath spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. And then notice all the places that David lists. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine hand. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab, my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph thou because of me. Another way to translate that. Over the Philistines I will triumph. You see what David's saying? I, I love the one, the, uh, Moab is my wash pot. It's like, I wash my feet in you. And eat them? <laughs> yeah, um, all that dust and dirt that you walk through when you're going around the land of the Edomites. Have you ever been on a hike and you got a bunch of little gravel in your, in your boots and you take your shoes off and just dump it all out? It feels so good to put your shoe back on. Well, are you looking for places of honor to dump out the dirt? No. And Edom, <laughs> I cast out my shoe on you. You guys are nothing. All these ites that are around me cause me no fear because I'm an Israelite myself. And the God of Israel is above me. The house of Israel is around me. That's this sense of Ephraim is the strength of my hand. That's the tribes to the north. Judah is my lawgiver. That's the tribes to the south. So Ephraim and Judah, Israel, Judah, all 12 tribes. North and south, the, the united kingdom of Israel. Let's do this thing. He says in verse 12, Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Oh, you need to pump up speech. Go reread Psalm 60 and understand what David is trying to teach his men. God is trying to teach us the same. Psalm 61 next is a plea to be with God. It's another Psalm of David. And he says in verse 1 and 2, Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Such a powerful image. Think anxiety there. Think depression there. Think stress or regret or sorrow or whatever emotion tends to overwhelm you. And then pray for this as David did. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, I've said before that hitting rock bottom has become one of my favorite phrases because it suggests that the rock, capital R, is still beneath you, bearing you up. And that we can build our foundation upon the rock of our Redeemer and never be moved. There's the wise man building his house on the rock, for sure. But here, also lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
Now think about this. This is an interesting rock to wrap our heads around. Well, it's a rock that wraps itself around us. It's beneath us, bearing us up, but it's also higher than we are, beckoning us to climb to higher ground. This is a rock of strength. This is a rock of shelter, yes, above us, providing us shelter, but also above us, showing us the way. I mean, picture stepping stones carved out of the rock. The monks did that with Mount Sinai, by the way. And this stairway to heaven, literally, okay? You can also add this, uh, because in Moses chapter 7, Enoch's vision of God, he also speaks of a rock. But this one is less about, oh, is it beneath or above? Notice the verse, that Moses 7, 53. I am Messiah, the King of Zion, the rock of heaven, which is broad as eternity. Whoso cometh in at the gate and climbeth up by me shall never fall. See, if you're climbing up by me, then I guess the rock must be below and above. This is the stone staircase. And, but what if I fall off? <laughs> you can't if you'll just stay with him. Remember, the feet aren't falling or failing. They're not sliding beneath you. You can't fall off the rock when it's as broad as eternity. Okay, if you ever rolled out of bed in the middle of the night uh, and you fell off the bed, imagine the bunk bed, you know why it has that little side thing to keep you in. Well, if you're a, a, not a very still sleeper and you've rolled out and off the bed, that's a painful thing. Well, you can't roll off the rock. It is as broad as eternity and no wonder David's praying, lead me to that rock. He prays also in verse 3 and 4, For thou hast been a shelter for me. Sounds like this rock overhang, this cave providing shade, protection from the elements. And a strong tower from the enemy. There's the rock fortress for safety. This is the rock tower for a strong position, a good military vantage point, a mountaintop. He then says, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Selah. Interesting juxtaposition of elements there. He's been talking about this rock all this time. But then he ends with wings. He mentions tabernacle there as well, which is, again, beautifully couched in temple imagery. And there in the house of God, there in the presence of God, I have both rock and and wing. I have strength, there's the rock, but I also have softness, there's the downy feathers of the wings of God. I think it was Elder Holland who once said about Howard W. Hunter that he was a man of velvet and steel. And I love that description. God is a God of velvet and steel too. A lion as well as a lamb. David continues singing in Psalm 62, and this is a song of trust. He says in verse 1 and 2, Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Compare that strength and stability to the wicked in verse 3. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be. And as a tottering fence. You ever seen a wall that kind of bows outward? 
Uh, yeah, ever seen a fence that's just tottering and you wonder how long it's going to stay up? You remember the story I told of as kids in California, we would climb up the, the fence between our house and the neighbors. It was a brick wall and we'd climb up it so that we could jump off that vantage point over the sidewalk into the swimming pool. And that was you know, a little adrenaline rush as teenagers. But you kind of had to push out pretty hard to be able to make it over the sidewalk. And as a result, that wall was bowing a little bit into the neighbor's yard. Yeah, sure enough, once there was an earthquake and the wall fell, guess whose yard it fell into? Yeah, sorry, neighbors. Uh, but that's, that's the life of the wicked. Our neighbors were awesome. They weren't wicked. We were the wicked ones then. But to think about this wall that's supposed to be strong and firm and protect you from the enemy. No, you're letting the enemy in. You're already surrendering to them. And so no wonder your wall is bowed. No wonder your fence is tottering. He goes on in verse 9. Surely men of low degree are vanity. And men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance. They are altogether lighter than vanity. Great description. The low as well as the high. We've, remember President Benson talked about pride from below and pride from above? It's right there in verse 9. And those that are, have pride from below, it's still vanity. It's still being jealous of those that are above them or being, feeling like I'm better than you because, I'm, because I don't have the pride that you have. Well, yeah, you got your own pride to, to worry about. Meanwhile, those in high degree, you're living a lie, thinking you're better than other people. And that's just pride from above. And then as he says at the end, as they're laid in the balance, there's some great Egyptian mythology there of being laid in the balance and your heart lied there. And is it heavy or, or light? And will you be able to, to pass the test of the, of, of the balances, the scales? Well, in this case, those who think they're so heavy with, oh, the... the world's wealth and world's wisdom and world's praise. We saw that way back at the beginning of today's lesson. What are you really? You're lighter than vanity and vanity is nothing. You are going to be blown away by whatever winds of popular opinion tell you you need to be this today or something else tomorrow. That's what pride does. It makes you lighter than vanity. Think about the great and spacious building. And it was lighter than vanity. It floated above the earth. There was no foundation in solid gospel ground. Or think about, was it Matthew that speaks of, when Jesus speaks of the weightier matters that people have been neglecting? Yeah, no wonder you're lighter than vanity. You don't have any weighty matters that are grounding you. No wonder when you're being winnowed, it's the chaff that gets blown away. So the kernel that is weightier falls back down to earth where you can gather it. Lighter than vanity. That's a powerful image. Or how about this one, verse 10. Trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. We saw the warning back in chapter 49 about the people that put their trust in wealth. Well, here's another one. And if your riches increase... Oh, be careful that your heart doesn't increase right alongside them as far as your trust or your reliance upon them. I don't know if it crosses our minds that a raise in pay doesn't require us to make a raise in lifestyle. 
It certainly doesn't require us to rise in pride or in worldliness or in selfishness. Maybe if riches increase, that means we can increase our fast offerings. Huh. That means we can give more to the poor and the needy. That means we can more comfortably live within our means instead of trying to live more comfortably by living outside of our means. I love the old poem, little couplet, There, there, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. And that describes pretty well the, the idea of creeping averages, that the average keeps getting higher and higher and higher because as riches increase, people keep setting their hearts upon them and we're trying to keep up with the Joneses or hope the Joneses can't keep up with us. Well, beware of all of that. Psalm 63 then is a psalm of longing. The superscription says it's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And I suppose if I was wandering through the wilderness, I would have some longing in my heart for easier times or better days. David prays in verse 1, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And that's a pretty perfect description of where he probably was. If he's wandering for safety in the harsh Judean wilderness, then... Yeah, flesh longing for, for something a little more comfortable to lie on and, and soul thirsting for something that can truly quench that thirst. But what's David really longing for? To see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Oh, what's he really longing for? More than food or water. He's longing for the presence of God and the place of God where he can most fully feel that presence. I just want to go back to the sanctuary. And I don't know of a better place when your soul is truly parched and your heart is longing for God. You know where he lives? Don't seek for the living among the dead. Go to the place of life itself, and that's the house of the Lord. Go there. And once we're there, look at verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. They're no longer parched. They're joyful. My soul is no longer famished. It's now filled and filled with marrow and fatness. Wow, there's the feast of fat things, wine on the lees, well refined. That's the kind of banquet hall that the house of the Lord is is meant to be for us. The 64th Psalm is a plea for protection from David. I'll just read verse 2 and 3. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. That's an interesting one that's hit me lately because it's felt for a long time now that I have been hidden from the secret counsel of the wicked. And I've been grateful for that. When I've received a bit of opposition more recently and been attacked online from former members of the church, uh, some of whom just want to mischaracterize me and my, 
what things I've said or things I've done, uh, some that are creating falsehood out of whole cloth uh, and accusing me of being mean-spirited in my conversations with them in my office, and that's never happened. Oh, my, my wife, uh, wonderful saint that she is, has been reassuring and said, oh, honey, just be grateful it took them this long. Uh, because if you're trying to build faith, then of course there's going to be opposition to that. We felt it as missionaries. Uh, and the more good you do, the more opposition there will be to it. Uh, so I, I, maybe I've just, I missed the days when I was hidden from the secret counsel of the wicked. But now that I've felt a few sword-like tongues and bows and arrows made out of bitter words, I am grateful for good company. Yours, <laughs> first of all. I'm grateful for amazing people that just want to do what's right. And will walk such things under their feet as well. And won't be intimidated by, by enemies or by opposition. I love what Jesus said, and Jesus knew this best. Think about how many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants he begins by saying, I am the light that shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He wasn't hidden from the secret counsel of the wicked at all. But what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That's what I mean by good company. Company you can thank God to be a part of. And that's what Psalm 65 is. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. In which David says, verse 1, Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. And unto thee shall the vow be performed. Is that a little prayer for the second coming that we might offer? Father, send thy son. Christ, come and come quickly, because praise waiteth for thee in Zion. We're ready. We're waiting. We're pleading for you to come. Hasten the day as you hasten your work. And, and we'll just be ready to... It's like the, the surprise party where everybody's getting anxious. And are they here? Are they getting close? Are they getting close? Because you just want to jump out and surprise them with praise that's been waiting I love that concept. He also speaks of Zion, and that's the place where this praise is going to burst forth. He says in verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and causeth to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Oh, David loved this place, the place he was never able to enter. This is like Moses longing for the promised land and trying to prepare everyone else to go, though he can't go himself. David felt that way about the house of the Lord. And wanting, if I can't go, then I just want all my people to, to be able to dwell in God's courts, the goodness of God's house to satisfy the soul, God's holy temple, and how he says it at the beginning, the man whom God chooses and causes to approach unto him. I mean, if this is God's house, it's like my, my, my youngest daughter when she was little, she's like, can I go play at so-and-so's house? I'm like, I don't know. Have they, have they invited you? Well, no. Can, can't I invite myself? Okay, I guess no. And just trying to, you kind of have to wait on their invitation 
And well, so until then, why don't you invite them to come over here? And then maybe they'll reciprocate. Well, invite the Lord into your life and he'll definitely invite you into his. And that's what he's saying. God chooses you. He causes you to approach. It's okay. My house is, is open to you. This is, it's almost like King Ahasuerus holding out the golden scepter to Esther. I want you to come. It's okay. I hope that you feel that reassurance every time you look at your temple recommend. God has chosen you and caused you to approach. So come home. Now, if that's David's psalm of thanksgiving, then Psalm 66 is a whole communal psalm of thanksgiving. Some psalms seem to be directed by an individual. Others seem to be more directed collectively by the whole house of Israel. And that's what this one is in Psalm 66. Verse 1, you see it. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. This isn't just for David. It's not just for Israel. It's for everyone. In verse 8, O bless our God, ye people everywhere. Make the voice of his praise to be heard everywhere, which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. There that is again. So often mentioned is fear of backsliding. And no wonder they're afraid of it. It happens so often among ancient Israel. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. And I imagine you've probably heard that beautiful analogy from the silversmiths that you know that silver has been sufficiently refined when you can see your reflection in it. His image engraven in our countenance. Verse 13 then, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth have spoken when I was in trouble. Now, I have a feeling we probably all, well, maybe I should just speak for myself, I know what that feels like. There have been times when I've been in trouble, and sometimes it's trouble of my own making, and I just cry out to God in my desperation, please, if you'll bail me out of this situation, I'll never get back into it, or I'll, I'll never do that again, or I'll make sure that I do, I'm better at this. Sometimes that happens when we have sinned. Sometimes that happens when we are suffering. Sometimes that happens when a loved one is sick. The real question, though, is what do we do after God has come through for us? Do we even recognize that it's God who has come through for us? Or we go, oh, oh, never mind. It, it all worked out. So since you didn't have to come to my rescue, I don't have to do what I said, right? And you picture God going, what do you mean I didn't come to your rescue? How do you think you got out of the situation? <sighs> no, please do your... Do what you said. Keep your vows. And my fear, this goes back to Pharaoh with, with Egypt, right? With Moses and the Israelites. And if you'll just stop this plague, I'll let the people go. Okay, great. Then he stopped the plague. And never mind. Things aren't as bad as I remember. Well, God will give you a reminder then with yet another plague. We have to do better at keeping the promises we make when we're in trouble. Otherwise, I mean, cry wolf often enough. And the good shepherd will know that there's, there's no wolf after all. Or how about verse 16? Come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. That's a great verse to describe fast and testimony meeting. I don't know of a better place to describe it. 
Because isn't that what we're doing? In fact, next time it's Fast Sunday, review this verse, Psalm 66, verse 16. And that might be the perfect way to introduce your testimony. Because what are you saying, basically, every time you come to the stand? To your fellow saints, you are offering the invitation, come and hear. Who are you speaking to? Fellow saints who also fear God, honor Him, reverence Him, revere Him. And what are you going to do in the next minute or two as you bear witness? You are going to declare what God has done for your soul. It's not a travel log. It's not a lesson. It's simply bearing witness of the hand of God in your life. This, can I, brothers and sisters, can I tell you what God has done for my soul this past month? Take what you will from that. I don't have to stand and say, I, I know the church is true and, and anything else that uh, comes out as vain repetition. If you know the church is true, and I do, then go, go ahead and bear testimony. That's fine. But even more than that, I bear testimony that God is good and that Christ loves us because I've seen it. These are the things he has done for my soul. Ah, now turn to the 67th Psalm. We're back to the community with another communal petition. I'll just read verse 1 and 2 for you. God be merciful unto us collectively. Bless us collectively and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. What a beautiful way to put that. Cause his face to shine upon us. Remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had to put a veil over his face because it was so aglow with the power of God? That's the transfiguration for you, right? When Jesus is fully known and seen by Peter, James, and John, as he is transfigured by God, if you think about the beautiful para, uh, parable described in Doctrine and Covenants section 88, about the God of the cosmos and the Lord of the universe visiting his children throughout the vineyard and giving them an hour each to be made glad with the light of the countenance of his Lord. Oh, his face shining upon us. Even if you think about a parent, a proud parent that's looking upon their child and beaming, that's the word we use. Well, there's a face shining upon someone that he loves. The 68th Psalm is another communal Psalm, but this one, it's not asking, it's thanking. A communal thanksgiving, and it's a messianic Psalm of David, it's beautiful. In verse five and six, God is described as a father of the fatherless, and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Fatherless and widows, think about how often those two are named and given special attention by a God who has a special place for them in his heart. He cares for the vulnerable, the marginalized. He cares for people that nobody seems to care for. And so he is the father of the fatherless. He is the judge of the widow. And what does he say? It's God in his holy habitation. In other words, it's the temple that makes all the injustices and inequities and unfairnesses of life. It makes those wrongs right. It ties up all the loose ends of things that went wrong in mortality because it promises that there's still hope for people that never got a shot. 
They can still be part of families. They can still receive the fullness of the gospel. In fact, notice the next line. This is amazing. So in the midst of this, father of the fatherless and the judge of the widow. So this, these are people who feel cut off from family. And I've got nothing and no one and nobody's going to care for me. But then the, Lord, then the, the psalm says this. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Now, bringing out those that are bound with chains is great imagery for the atonement, right? That he breaks the, the, the bands of death, the chains of hell, but we're used to that. It's the first phrase that blows me away. He setteth the solitary in families. And this right on the heels of a promise to fatherless and widow. Don't worry, I've got a place for you. In fact, a place that will feel like family. That you're not forgotten. You won't be alone. The Spirit can be your constant companion in the meantime. And a sociality that is mingled with glory will be yours throughout eternity. If you have felt cut off from your fellow man, if you feel like you've been alienated from others or rejected by those that are supposed to love you, if you're single and wonder if you'll forever remain unloved, you might remain unmarried in this life, but you are not unloved. And I hope you feel that deeply. I hope you know that God taketh solitary souls and surrounds them with people that love them. Family. That's, that's the feeling that you'll have in those relationships. It's beautiful. Think about that the next time you do work for the dead in the holy habitation of God. You are setting the solitary in family. My mom loves finding... My mom and dad are great family historians and they are, they're serving a service mission as we speak at a family history center. And one of my mom's favorite things to do... I mean, this is like her birthday celebration. When she says, hey, I, I know my birthday present. This is what I want you to give me. Can't just come to the temple. I want all my kids there. I want the family here, and I want to do ceilings in the temple. And one of her favorite things to do is to find an entire family uh, to do the work for and get them all ready so they can be sealed all at once. If you've never done it, it's amazing. Usually you go do ceilings in the temple, and it's here's a husband and wife, and you perform the vicarious ceiling for them. Or here's a child, and one at a time, one after the other, you'll seal daughters and sons to mothers and fathers. But if you have all the family and the names are ready, you can seal all the kids simultaneously. And it's wild. And so my mom tries to make sure that there's enough of the kids and the, and the spouses and everything come. And, okay, now I need, okay, I need three boys and I need two daughters and uh, we need a mom and a dad. And you're surrounding the altar. It is so incredible if you've ever done this or if you've never i hope you get the chance and coming together truly as a family and sealing everyone at the same time those are some of the most moving sealing experiences i've ever had and that phrase from the 68th psalm is what's happening right there around the altar in god's holy habitation he is setting the solitary in families I hope, I hope you have a family good enough that it provides you a glimpse of the social joys of heaven, of the companionship and, and relationships that will come 
That's what salvation is. That's what exaltation is. It's relationships, including the solitary feeling like family. Verse 11, keep reading. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Oh, earlier I said there was a verse that was a perfect description of testimony meeting. Well, that's a perfect description of missionary work, worldwide missionary work, and saints that across the earth that are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. God gave the word. Here it is, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the restoration and all of its glory. Well, who's going to share it? Well, great is the company of those that publish it. And I'm honored to be in that company, as we all should be. Share the things that we know are true. In verse 13, though ye have lain among the pots, and the word there for pots is actually really unclear. We're not totally sure what the meaning is. Some translate it as sheepfolds. Some translate it as ash heaps. But whatever it is, it's lowly. Okay? So those pots, you're lying among them. You're down at the, in the dirt, in the dust. But what's the promise? Yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. This is in some ways a repeat of what we already saw earlier about fatherless and widows now rejoicing as being part of a family. Well, here the lowly, the needy, the poor, lying among the pots, whatever that means, how someday you will soar upon, upon wings of silver. You will <laughs> rise to God on wings of gold. What a promise. Talk about reversing the fortunes of the unfortunate. In verse 16, I love this verse too. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now he's talking about the temple, as the Psalms so often do. And it's the holy hill. It's the mountain of the Lord. And he's designating Mount Zion, there in the city of David, Jerusalem. This is going to be the site of the temple of God. This is the one place, according to Jewish tradition, that is inherently holy on earth, directly beneath the throne of God in heaven. The axis mundi, the, the navel of the world, the center of the universe, and there's no hill quite like it. So I love what, it, I mean, speaking of personifying things or, or anthropomorphizing things, why leap ye, ye high hills? It, I, I chuckle at this. It's almost like David is looking around at all the other surrounding hilltops. And like, okay, yeah, some of you are pretty high, but what, are you trying to jump higher? <laughs> You're not going to outdo the elevation of the mountain of the Lord. So yeah, leap all you want. Everest, uh, you, you can't hold a candle to the mountains of the Lord, no matter what their physical elevation might be. Go ahead and leap and try, but God has chosen particular places to call home. In verse 18, he says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, and that preposition, for men, could also be translated from men, so it's hard to tell. Is he receiving gifts for us to give us or receiving gifts from us that we're giving to him? Well, either way, yea, for the rebellious also that the Lord God might dwell among them. So those gifts are such, again, it, whether it's for or from, it includes the rebellious as well as the righteous. In other words, God is so good as he's ascended on high, as he's led captivity itself captive. Talk about role reversal. Uh, you want, hey, bondage, you want to know what bondage feels like? Well, let me capture you. And God takes captivity 
captive to the point that, of course, we're going to praise God and give him gifts. He's given us the ultimate gift. It's freedom, deliverance from that captivity. Even the rebellious can receive those gifts from God if they'll just repent. Or, flip around the preposition, even the rebellious will give gifts to God once they realize that God can deliver them from their rebelliousness. It's beautiful imagery of the atonement. In fact, it seems to be what Paul was aiming at when he said this in Ephesians chapter 4. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, which means he's about to quote someone, and guess who he quotes? Well, this psalm from David. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So evidently Paul thought the preposition should be for. Maybe that's why the King James translators chose that one. These are gifts that he gives to us. They're intended for us. And it's a God of goodness that showers them down upon us. So Paul, thank you again for knowing your Psalms well enough to quote just the right one at just the right time. I'd love to get to that point myself. In verse 19 then, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. So again, it sounds like gifts for us. He's loading us down. Talk about Santa Claus. But here, there's something else to this. In the King James, with benefits is italicized, which means it wasn't there. So the Hebrew just says, blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us, even the God of our salvation. Now, I can see why the King James translators would include, would insert with benefits. He's loading us with all of that. But I also love the Hebrew original of just leaving it so you get to fill in the blank. What's he loading you with? Yeah, benefits, well, blessings, hope, joy, relief, whatever it might be. But also, what if he's not just loading you with things? What if you're the load that he is carrying? Because the Hebrew would allow for that as well. Other translations even say along those lines, who daily bears our burdens, or who daily bears us up. Yes, he loads us with benefits, but he also <laughs> just loads us up and carries us home on his own shoulders, broad as they are. One last verse to say something about in, sections, or in Psalm 68. Notice verse 31. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. And whatever else that might mean, and I don't know all the possible interpretations, but that text, Psalm 68, 31, has been one of the absolute central texts in the history of African-American biblical interpretation because it speaks of Egypt and particularly Ethiopia. And to think of black Africa offering or stretching her hands out to God and princes coming forth from that beautiful part of the world. Whether it was abolitionists quoting this verse to talk about the abolition of the slaves and the end of slavery, or whether it was African-American slaves themselves and African-American preachers through the 19th century and beyond, quoting this verse to reassure them that 
you are sons and daughters of God. No matter how much a racist world might look down upon you, you are princes and princesses. And though you have been, people, I'll put it this way, while the racists have stretched out their hands against you, God loves you, and once you feel that love, you will stretch out your hands unto him. Some African-American groups have interpreted this to speak of the Christianizing of all of Africa. And it's happening. It's amazing to watch the center of gravity for Christianity worldwide descend to the global south. Where you see, this is true within Catholicism, it's true within the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that the work of the Lord is... Oh, the field isn't exactly white already to harvest. The field seems to be black already to harvest, and it is a beautiful harvest of beautiful souls. My wife served her mission in France and said that most of the Europeans seem to be counted among those that were described earlier about saying there is no God. And yet immigrants from Africa, she said, tended to be the people that would give her the time of day and give the gospel the time of day. Uh, her hope, and I'm right alongside her, is that someday when we're old and gray and retired, well, I guess I'm already gray, but when I'm old and retired, a ser uh, uh, to serve a mission in Africa would be an incredible thing, where princes will come from Egypt and Ethiopia as they stretch their hands up to God. It's beautiful. I do love to see how scriptures have been used throughout time, and the kinds of people throughout history that have gravitated to certain passages that have resonated with them for sweet reasons. That's one of them. Psalm 69. This is a prayer for deliverance and another messianic psalm of David. He prays in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters are come into my soul. You remember when we studied Noah and the ark and the pitch? And that same word was used for covering, atonement. The ark was pitched within and without with pitch, so none of the water could get in. That's what I think of with that passage. The waters are coming into my soul. So God, please save me. Please cover me. Please atone for me, or I'm going to sink. He goes on, I sink in deep mire. Remember the miry clay we saw last week? Where there is no standing, I come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Well, if you're coming to deep water and if the floods are overflowing you, good thing we worship a Lord who can walk on top of it. It's one of my favorite things about the, that image of Christ walking across the water in the New Testament. The things that you sink in, I rise above. And as you're feeling like you're drowning, just look up and take my hand and I will reach down to you. When I hit my 20th year of teaching seminary and institute, uh, the church education system is kind at just thank you for two decades of service. And they gave to me, well, they, they, they let you pick. Uh, and I, there's a painting that was on the, the approved list of, of gifts. And I chose one, one of my favorite paintings of Christ. 
as he reaches down through the water that he's standing on and that Peter was sinking in. You probably know the painting. It's beautiful because you, from the vantage point of the viewer, you're underwater already. This is not some kind of third person. There's Jesus and there's Peter and there's the interaction between them. No, you are Peter in the painting and you're underwater looking up through it as Jesus stands upon the surface but pierces that surface with his hand and reaches down under the water to raise you. I'm grateful that that 20-year anniversary came at a time when I was feeling swallowed up by the floods and the deep waters were overflowing me and my family. And that painting that hangs on my wall in my home is a reminder of the goodness of God. That no matter how deep the mire might be and how in over your head you might be with hard things, the Lord is above them all. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's the amazing thing. We don't, we don't have to wait that long. He's right there wanting to come. Now I did say that this was a messianic psalm which means we should be thinking more about Jesus. Now, I was thinking about Jesus through that whole explanation, but that, I, I was thinking about Jesus as the one hearing the prayer. Turn it around and think about Jesus offering that. And again, go back to Psalm 22, Jesus on the cross. Think about the other Psalms we studied last week of Christ in Gethsemane, wondering, you give life to those that ask, will you give it to me? Think about Jesus in the mock trials with Annas and Caiaphas and the fear around as people are falsely accusing him. Well, now think of Jesus again and think of him in any of his atoning agonies. Think Gethsemane, think Calvary, think the garden, think the cross. But think of Jesus saying, save me, O God for the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. I know the brook Kidron that flowed through Gethsemane was just a shallow stream. But understanding what Jesus was going through, those were deep waters. And a flood that threatened to overflow him and sweep him down to the sea of death. Since the Kidron does ultimately flow to the Dead Sea. Keep continue giving Jesus the voice here. And you'll recognize another messianic verse in verse 9, where he would say, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. The zeal of God's house. Now, David had zeal for God's house. That's why he wanted to build it and why he prepared so diligently for it. But Jesus had zeal for his father's house as well. No wonder in John chapter 2, as Jesus is cleansing the temple, his disciples remembered that it was written in the 69th Psalm, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Another prophecy fulfilled in Christ. Or how about this one, verse 20 and 21. Reproach hath broken my heart. 
Remember in the crucifixion, Jesus literally died of a broken heart? I am full of heaviness. No wonder he fell on his face in Gethsemane under that infinite load. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. Could you not watch with me one hour? And for comforters, but I found none compared to the comforter he would send to his apostles, even though he needed more comfort than they did. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So many elements of the 69th Psalm pointing to Jesus. There he is on the cross as they raise the hyssop to this Passover lamb, offering him vinegar and gall. Then in verse 30 and 31, despite all that, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. We're back to this idea of what's real sacrifice and what sacrifice does the Lord really want? An ox or a bullock? <laughs> it's got its horns there and its hoofs there. I mean, quite the gift. No, give me a song of praise. Give me thanksgiving. <laughs> That's the, whole, the only gift I'm asking from you is an acknowledgement of the gift I've already given you. Rejoice in that. Well, there's more rejoicing in psalms that come. In Psalm 70, he's praying for that kind of rejoicing. It's a prayer for victory. In the superscription, it says it's a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. And what's he trying to help us all remember? Well, he begins by comparing his nothingness to the glory of God. Remember that. That man is nothing. Which thing we never suppose? Well, we need to suppose it more often. We need to remember it frequently. He says in verse 4, Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And let such as love thy salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. Oh, all praise, all honor, all glory be to him. Pass along that praise. Pass it upward. Psalm 71, then, is a plea for help, and we've seen a lot of those, but this one is different because it's specifically from the elderly. I'm getting closer and closer for this verse to apply to me. As he says in verse 6, By thee have I been holden up from the womb. So as long ago as that was, from very birth, Jesus was, or the Lord was, was leading me. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. Again, we're back to birth. My praise shall be continually of thee. Haven't we all been cared for by God since birth? Of course. Then verse 9, Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. We talk about birth to death or cradle to grave. Well, yeah, God is there from the start to the finish. He is the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega. And from mother's womb, to the days of our old age and failing strength, the strength of the Lord never fails us. In verse 17 and 18, a similar image. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. There is something wise about the aged who are doing their best to teach the rising generation the glories of God. 
they might not have the same physical strength they once had, but God still does. And so what are they doing? They are showing God's strength unto this generation. And having had a lifetime of evidence of the strength of God in their lives, they've got a lot to share. You who are old and gray-headed, I hope you'll show God's strength to the generations that have come after. And you of the rising generation, I hope you'll give the old and gray-headed a chance to do so. They've learned a thing or two over a long life. And it's, it's the fact that God has been there for them every step of the way. Give them a chance to bear that testimony to you. Psalm 72, then, is a royal psalm. This may have been used at the coronation uh, of Solomon. It could have been used at a, an anniversary of the coronation of David. We don't know for sure. The superscription says it's a psalm for Solomon, though. Whether he's now the king or someday will be, or has already been for a while, is hard to tell. But this one uses Solomon as a type and shadow of Jesus, which makes this another messianic psalm. Look for Solomon here and look for Jesus. In verse 1, give the king, think of David here, thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. Now think of Solomon. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment, which is exactly what he did, especially when those two women came fighting over their son. Remember the details? When those two prostitutes came fighting over their illegitimate child? Well, no worries, because Solomon judged his people with righteousness. Even the poor, poor in spirit, poor in social class, even poor in morals. He judged without becoming judgmental. And I've always been impressed with that. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents, which is exactly what they did. The kings of Sheba, or in his case, the queen of Sheba, and Seba shall offer gifts, which is what they did. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Wow, that describes first kings beautifully. Exactly what the nations did for Solomon, the wisest of all the men of the earth. But if that was true for Solomon, then it's infinitely more so when we're talking about Jesus. That's what they did, past tense, for Solomon. It's what they will do, future tense, to Jesus. And what a day it will be as the kings of the earth bow before him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, falling down before him, serving him, offering gifts. This great judge of the righteous and deliverer of the poor. How about verse 12? Again, think Solomon, but better yet, think Jesus. He shall deliver the needy when he crieth. The poor also, and him that hath no helper. Christ was the helper of them all. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. It actually makes me wonder there, if we're thinking of Solomon himself, is that what you were supposed to be doing all the, all that, throughout your reign with the money, the wealth, and the riches that was pouring into the kingdom's coffers? Was that what it was intended for ultimately? I mean, yes, part of it was the seven years to build the house of God out of cedar and gold, the best possible materials. But beyond that, as the wealth kept pouring in, as the kings of the earth kept giving you gifts and falling down before you, was it meant for a 13-year construction pro uh, project intended for yourself? Was it really intended for an ivory throne and 
lions marrying each other down the steps. Uh, a little over the top there. Think of what you could have done for the poor and the needy. Imagine if Solomon had done that. In fact, imagine if his son Rehoboam had watched his father do that. I don't think the people would have been begging for Rehoboam to take it easy on them. And I don't think Rehoboam would have threatened them with scorpions instead of his father's whips. That would have changed the history of Israel. If only they had remained more cognizant of the needy and the poor. If only they had recognized that the blood of even the lowliest of these, my brethren, was precious in God's sight and ought to be precious in their own. But whereas Solomon and Rehoboam ultimately did it wrong, Jesus always did it right. Thus, verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And as famous as the name of Solomon might be, oh, the name of Jesus is infinitely more so. Then verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, not quite. Uh, there's about a dozen or so more psalms from this point forward that are still attributed to David and may have been his originally. They may have been discovered later or written by others and attributed to David after the fact. We don't know, but it does suggest that the psalms, it was a work in progress. And the, it's still being assembled over time. We'll see some examples of that in this in the second half of today's material, as we look back from a Babylonian exile and return, and they're still singing about things. And so the hymn book keeps getting added to, just like ours is about to soon, I hope. Uh, some amazing things should be coming. But pause here. Let me give you a salah for a moment and invite you to just stop and savor the first half of this week's study and realize the praise that has been offered to God, especially the Messianic Psalms of what the Lord has done for us at infinite expense. I do testify alongside Solomon here that precious in his sight is our blood, which is why he shed his blood for us. I am grateful for him. And even if we use this moment to to honor that these are the, the end, this is the end of David's psalms, then thank you, David, for giving us such glorious things to sing about. As we shift to the second half, oh, we still have things, we still have songs yet to sing, and those songs are glorious because they speak of the glories of God. Moving into the second half of this week's lesson then, Psalm 73 is a declaration of trust. And since David, for the most part, is behind us, we'll now shift to Asaph, who again was one of these wonderful singers and seers uh, during the days of David. This is a declaration of trust from him. And he says in verse 2 through 5, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Again, the hind's feet, we keep talking about this, this fear of backsliding. But then Asaph tells us why in his case. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. 
Eh, at least that's what it looks like on their social media feed. <laughs> I mean, you look at the wicked and man, they seem to be prospering. To the point that you almost get a little jealous and wonder, maybe wickedness is happiness after all. They sure make it look like it is. Oh, why are we envious of the foolish? Why do we only look at the temporal prosperity of the wicked, knowing that moth and rust will corrupt that, like we saw at the beginning of today's material? If we envy the wicked, then we don't really agree with Alma that wickedness never was happiness. So what do we do? I love what Asaph does. Verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. I mean, I was grappling with this, what seemed like reality and the wicked prospering around me. Remember, Job has to wrestle with this. It, it, it countered the whole sin equals suffering kind of thing that he was wrestling with. So this is too painful for Asaph. But then the next phrase, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. I love that. So many Psalms focused on the temple. Well, here's a temple text as well. And what's he saying? I was jealous of the wicked until I went to the temple. <laughs> I was kind of sucked into this foolishness and it was painful until I realized once I went into the house of God, they don't get any of this. And they don't get the glories that God promises the faithful in a place like this. I love the temple for its clarity. I mean, talk about a windshield wiper. You go to the temple and the mud's gone. And you see things as they really are. And you stay there long enough and it just weans you off the world. And you realize, man, if I had to miss out on this, the world has nothing to offer in its place. And so talk about snapping out of that false reality back into the real one. The wicked don't even know what they're missing. What was I thinking being envious of them? They should be envious of us. But they don't have to be. They're welcome to come. Just change. Repent. In fact, I'll try to invite them to do just that. But there's something powerful about this. When you look at the wicked and think, hmm, I don't know what I'm missing. Please reverse that. And the temple is the best place to do it, to see that clearly. Verse 22, he admits, so foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. I'm sorry for my foolishness, Father. I apologize for my ignorance. That was pretty short-sighted of me. But now that I'm in thy house and getting a glimpse of the eternal perspective, I am eternally grateful that you are holding me by the right hand, giving me your counsel, helping me here in thy house, to grow up in thee. No better place to do it. Psalm 74 is next, the Psalm of Lament. Now this may, like I mentioned earlier, there are Psalms that must have been written far after the fact, after the days of David, or Asaph for that matter, uh, that are looking back at better days. And this seems to be one of them. This may, most likely was written between the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians and the uh, return of the Jews to Jerusalem under the Persians. Uh, later, next week, we'll see a psalm that talks about them singing the psalms of Zion by the rivers of Babylon. Well, this might have been one of those kinds of psalms. In verse 1, they pray, O God, 
why hast thou cast us off forever? I mean, I know you haven't, but sometimes it sure feels like you have. Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Will you always be this angry? As evidenced by what we're going through? Well, part of the question there, in fact, the question I asked, why doth thine anger smoke? If you think hard enough, you probably could get some answers. Elder Maxwell used to say, don't just ask, Lord, is it I? Ask, Lord, is it this? Is this the thing that's keeping me from coming unto thee? Is this the sin I need to repent of? He said, you'll probably know what it is, and you'll recognize you knew that a long time ago. Well, why is thine anger smoking against us? Well, think about it. All that we've been reading in the books of Kings, right? Verse 2, remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Please remember that, Father. In the days of our destruction, self-inflicted as it was, please don't give up on us. Remember that we belong to thee, even if we haven't been acting like it. This actually reminds me of Moses, time after time, as the Israelites are murmuring, and God, probably trying to test uh, Moses on this, would say things like, that's it, I'm not, look what they're doing down there, it's over, and I'm going to destroy them all, and we'll start over with you. Okay? Did it with Adam, did it with Noah, and now Moses, you're my third. Third time's the charm, what do you say? Will you, will you be my new Adam, my new, Moses, my new Noah? And that's when Moses had to say similar things of what we just read. Whoa, 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 God, please, please, th these are your people. You purchased them out of Egypt by, uh, with the death of the firstborn. Please remember them. You've redeemed them. Please be patient with them and give them another chance. And God always does. He did for Moses. He's doing it for them here. In verse 7, they have cast fire into thy sanctuary. That's the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. That's why often during these psalms of lament, you'll get that question. How long will we have to suffer until we can ultimately be forgiven of our sins and given another chance? That, that last passage I just read, 7 to 9, is not just a description of Israel during the Babylonian captivity, I think it's a beautiful description of the apostasy. When synagogues are destroyed and the sanctuary takes fire, when the dwelling place of God has been cast down and sadly there are no more prophets to be able to let us know how long and what should we be doing in the meantime and how do we come back to God and what a blessing to be living in a day of the restoration when there are now prophets again on the land, that there are synagogues of God across the earth, that there are dwelling places of God's name that are popping up in almost every nation. Grateful for the days of the restoration. Psalm 75, speaking of gratitude, here's a psalm of thanksgiving. I think, and gratitude for vanquishing the wicked. Uh, Asaph is, is singing about that. And he says in verse 8, interesting imagery, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture. 
all these elements that are still swirling around in it, giving it that deep red color. He poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all that's left behind, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Elsewhere in scripture, those dregs are referred to as the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. Oh, that sounds like it has a bitter aftertaste. Or if you remember Revelation chapter 14, as Jesus is treading the winepress alone, as we sing in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. I get that sense in Psalm 75. And this blood-red wine, this bitter cup that the wicked will drink the dregs of, that's the tragic irony. The wicked didn't have to drink those dregs, as the psalmist says, because Christ was willing to drink the bitter cup himself. He did not shrink. Unfortunately, if people shrink back from God's calls to change and repent, then there's, even though Jesus drained the cup, I suppose there's more that God can keep pouring out. These people are pouring it out themselves and will have to drink it. And that's tragic. Psalm 76 then is a psalm of Zion that Asaph writes. I'll just read verse 1 and 2. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem, as in Jerusalem, also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Think about all those places. Judah, Israel, their southern kingdom, northern kingdom. Salem, Zion, the place of God. Are we coming to know God in places like that? Are we magnifying his name in sacred space? Are we establishing peace? There's Salem, Shalom, by building temples and establishing Zion all over the earth. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're singing about. Let Zion in her, in her beauty rise and prepare the earth for the coming of her king. In Psalm 77, Asaph writes a community petition. And together, communally, they pray in verse 2, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. Enoch said that himself at one point. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Oh, this poor soul is sleepless and speechless and hopeless and comfortless. Is this depression? Is this anguish? Is it sorrow? Whatever it is, it is overwhelming to him, even to the point that the thought of God troubles him. And he's complaining. I get a sense of Job in these verses. Then verse 7 he asks, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. Have you ever felt that? To the point that in your deep complaint, in your anguish, you are wondering about all of those same things. Have I been cast off permanently? Has God stopped being the merciful, 
kind, loving, compassionate Christ that I've always known him to be? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Powerful way this is said. Do his promises fail? Because sometimes it seems like they do. And especially when we have, are suffering from the kind of depression that verses 2 through 4 suggest, then no wonder we ask the kinds of questions listed in 7 through 9. Maybe God just forgot to be gracious. Maybe that's what he was in his younger, kinder-hearted days, but now, no. He isn't that way anymore. We have to ask ourselves, like Elder Maxwell did, is this permanent general darkness or is it merely passing cloud cover with the sun still shining above the gloom? Passing cloud cover? We have to trust God hasn't changed. The same God who was so merciful throughout the scriptures, including the Old Testament, will be there for me as well. And Asaph finally remembers that and acknowledges it. I love verse 10. I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Now I know there aren't easy answers to clinical depression. This is hard. And my loved ones who suffer with this, my heart goes out and suffers alongside them. And if, it's something, if that's one of the crosses that you have to bear, then my heart goes out to you too. What I love about those last verses I just read though, 10 through 12, is when Asaph admits, this is my infirmity talking. All those questions I just asked from 7 through 9, wondering if God just forgot to be gracious, if his, if his tender, tender mercies have been shut up and he's no longer a favorable, kind-hearted, merciful God. It's just clean gone. That's my infirmity. And I think if we can acknowledge that, I'll put it this way. It's, there have been times where with some major mental illness that I wondered, that I didn't know about, for example, and I just thought that certain children were being belligerent or disobedient. Or, and then I found out their diagnosis and I realized, oh, they're wrestling with demons that I've never had to deal with. And that's their infirmity. It's not them. And if you can separate the two and to be able to see past an infirmity at a suffering soul and realize that they don't want to feel this and they don't want to act that way, I've got a, a brother-in-law I absolutely love that's had to wrestle with a lot of mental health challenges himself. And he fights and pushes through and, and has such a sweet and deep faith in God as a result. I mean, he would come over in some of the depths of, our own, of my own family's mental illness challenges. He would come over and do PowerPoint presentations and just take kids out to, to lunch and, and mourn with those that mourn and try to comfort those that stood in need of comfort and give us counsel and direction. And, and one of my favorite sayings of his, when someone's going through something difficult and acting out in a way that might not be the most healthy, he'll just say, well, of course, he's depressed. Or, well, why do you think she's asking this or is doing all these things? She's depressed. And he knows because he's been depressed. And, and just that 
to me, it's not minimizing anything. And it isn't from him. He's not trying to go, oh, come on, let's just get over it. That's not what he's saying at all. Believe me, not from him. But he recognizes, just as was said here, this is my infirmity. It's not reality. It's not things as they really are. It's not how, that I, how I really would respond to things. This is the infirmity speaking. And please help me and be patient with me in the meantime as I seek counseling or therapists or medication or anything that you can do both from the professional side and from the spiritual side. Those are both gifts from a God who loves you and wants to reach you through despite the depression that's pushing him away. This is my infirmity. I love that. Asaph, why are you asking all those questions? He's depressed, my brother-in-law would say. And Asaph, yeah, you're right. I am. So please don't take me seriously. But take my infirmity seriously in terms of this is something I'm wrestling with. And what do I do because of that infirmity? I love the list of counsel that he gives you. It's so beautiful in those verses I just read. Remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I mean, I'm not feeling his hand close to me right now, or maybe I'm feeling it close, but it's like weighing heavy in terms of hurt. That's not him. But there have been times in my life, try that. And if your present is painful and your future looks hopeless, then please search through your past for times where you have felt the right hand of the Most High, and remember them. They'll be years worth of memories. Or the next phrase, remember the works of the Lord. All that he's done, and if you can't remember things he's done for you, look around at the things he's done for others, and know that he is no respecter of persons. He loves you just as much. Or how about remember thy wonders of old? Just sources of strength or testimony or awe, where you've known God has been present, and then meditate on it. And talk about it. That's beautiful. This is one of my favorite verses in terms of what do you do when you're dealing with depression. And to meditate upon God's work, if you can, if you can focus your mind on that. To talk about God's doings with others, even just to get out of your own internal mental world and come to someone else and talk about things that God has done. In your life, if you can remember them, or just ask them, will you talk to me about the things that God is doing in yours just so I can know that he's there for someone? And if he's there for you, he might be there for me. It's a beautiful passage to anyone who has to acknowledge, I'm depressed, and that's my infirmity. Go on to verse 13, and we'll see where these memories can best be reconfirmed. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Of course we're talking about the temple again. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Ah, sit with those truths in your days of depression. Force yourself to acknowledge them even when you can't feel the truth of what you're saying. Admit to God that he does wonders, that he is strong, that he's redeemed. Your illness cannot change the reality of God's power and might, his love for you, even when you're not feeling it. Then verse 16, the waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. 
Oh, we're talking about troubled waters. Well, what are they troubled about? We get troubled by the troubled waters, right? That's what we talked about earlier in terms of being, you know, sink or swim, I'm sinking. And God is reaching down to lift me up out of it. But what I love about that is you're not the only troubled one. You're troubled by the waters, but the tr waters themselves are troubled by God. And, and, and talk about you know, putting depression back in its place. Talk about you know, striking fear into the heart of anxiety itself. I love this. The waters saw thee and were afraid. Do you realize that the waters are troubled by God? That fear itself is afraid of him? Because he's bigger than they are. God is bigger than your challenges. So don't be anxious about those challenges. <laughs> Let your challenges be anxious about a God who will someday overcome them. I mean, if you wrestle with mental illness, Psalm 77 is a masterpiece. Spend some extra time there. Another psalm that deserves some extra time is Psalm 78. And it takes some time because it's one of the longer ones. It's a history lesson after all. And history can take some time. Uh, Asaph here, though, is hoping that we will learn from the lessons of history. And so he walks you through much of the Old Testament that we've already studied. For example, he talks about God giving his law to Israel. There's Sinai for you. and It's meant to be passed down through the generations, through all of this history that he's unfolding. He says in verse 5 and 6, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. We saw earlier that verse about the old and the gray-headed teaching the rising generation about the glories of God. Well, every generation is supposed to do that. And from Moses down to Joshua, and Joshua down through the judges, and judges to, the, to Samuel, and Samuel down through Saul and David and Solomon, and then all these kings, and Elijah and Elisha, and, and all the people that we've been studying so far this year. Can you imagine having a, a history of the hand of God? And just wanting, this is what President Hinckley used to say, don't be the weak link in the chain of your family's generations. And so to pass it down, this is a multi-generational family of faith. And why must it be passed down? Verse 7 and 8. That they, the rising generation, might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. I mean, Asaph is basically saying what Moroni says at the end of the Book of Mormon, pleading with his readers to learn to be more wise than we have been. Please, even if our lives are merely cautionary tales for posterity, please learn from our mistakes. Don't repeat them. Asaph continues to review the history of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, all those murmurings, all those sins. And he says in verse 33, Therefore their days did he consume in vanity, and their years in trouble. That's the wander, wander, die, wander, die principle. But when he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and inquired early after God. Sound like the pride cycle? Humbled by their afflictions, turning back to the Lord. And they remembered that God was their rock, and the high God of their Redeemer. But how long did that last? 
Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. That's the tragedy. They felt sorrow, that's for sure, but it wasn't godly sorrow. They were sad they got caught, not sad that they committed the sin that they were caught in. They were devastated by destruction, but not so devastated that they'd actually change their ways. We've got to be better than that. Our heart has to be right, not just paying lip service uh, and a token, I'm, I'm sorry, like little kids sometimes do when they're forced to. Okay? We need to be steadfast in the covenant, uh, and they were not. But, verse 38, he, God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity anyway, and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away, and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. That is a beautiful verse. Remember when I taught you the book of Judges and said that I got dizzy when I read it in one day? Because the pride cycle kept going round and round and round until I got so frustrated with God saying, why would you forgive them again when you know they're going to mess up on the very next column? Sure enough, they did. And that's when the Spirit whispered to me, because I do the same thing for you. Ouch, you do. I'm sorry. And I'm grateful for a God who is full of compassion. And where does his compassion come from? Remember, compassion, the word come with, passion, feeling, suffering. So his compassion comes because of fellow feeling. It's empathy. It's condescension. It's, it's Christ understanding what we're made of. And what we're made of, isn't that great? It's fallen earth. So when he says he remembered that they were but flesh, I'm grateful he remembers that. It's the diagnosis. I know your infirmity, and it's just the infirmity speaking. I have had to do that often with my own children. And just be patient, because I know the diagnosis. And I know that wasn't them screaming at me. That was the mental illness. And I'll be patient. There have even been times where I have prayed to Heavenly Father, please be patient with me. I hope you know my diagnosis. Once you know someone's diagnosis, you can be more understanding. And I know that God knows our diagnosis too. He just admits it, admits it in that verse. Diagnosis? Oh, you're made of flesh. Yeah, that's, hmm, that's a rough one. And, and wind that passeth away. That's all you are. You're your flesh and wind. Huh. Remember Adam, the symbolism of his creation? Dust? And breath, oh yeah, that's, that's tough to work with. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll just be patient with you. And how about I oh, change, trade that dust for divinity? And how about I breathe into you the breath of life in terms of the constant inflow of the Spirit of God? We'll keep working on this, okay? I know what you're dealing with, and... And I'll be patient. This is comprehension born of condescension. Then verse 40. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Well, don't, don't count. You'll lose track. 
Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. And that to me is one of the most fascinating verbs you'll see in the whole book. They provoked him. Okay, that's bad enough. They grieved him. That, that, now we're working on his feelings. They tempted him. But the one that's most striking, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, back to the wander, wander, die, wander, die principle. That God was ready to bless them. He had the higher law on the tablets right in front of them, but then they were golden calving instead. That he brought them right to the promised land and the banks of the Jordan River, but they weren't ready to go across with fear, with faith. They had fear instead, and so fine, I'm eternal. I'll, come to, I'll try again in 40 years with your children. This is Zion's camp with the Battle of Fishing River. All of those incredible examples of the wander, wander, die principle. And what are they doing? They're limiting the Holy One of Israel. We're, we're tying the hands of God. I mean, theologically, is that even possible? Well, yes. The New Testament even says that there were certain cities in Galilee that Christ himself couldn't perform many miracles because the people just didn't have sufficient faith. Wow. You mean his faith, excuse me, his works without our faith is dead? Whoa. It's possible for mere mortality to limit omnipotence? Huh? I thought God was almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent. Oh, he is. But he does force himself to work within our, our faith, our worthiness, what we're willing to, to let him do. I mean, this is, a, this is a, seriously a verb you've got to wrestle with for a while and wonder, are you limiting God? Am I? Are there things that he just can't do because I'm not letting him? And, and that's tragic. We must not get in the way of God. Don't limit him. But then 52, he made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And that might go back to him knowing that we're just flesh and, and wind. We're just sheep. And if you talk to a shepherd, sheep are, no offense sheep, if any of you are listening, but you're kind of dumb. And sheep are kind of known for their cluelessness. And just, I mean, the parable of the lost sheep, the fact there was only one of them, that's probably really inaccurate. Okay, because uh, sheep just kind of wander wherever they're going. Where's the, is the grass greener over there? Then let me just go. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's how Isaiah will say it. It's like, you, you want to think what's synonymous with, with going astray? Oh, you mean like sheep? Oh, yeah. And what does God know about us? That, yeah, we're sheep. But he guides us like a flock because he is the good shepherd. I shall not want green pastures and still waters and everything else we felt when we sang that beautiful psalm last week. No wonder God then chose David to be his under-shepherd because David was such a good shepherd himself. Oh, a good type and shadow of the greatest of shepherds, Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 70 to 72. He chose David. See, our history lesson has finally come to the present. He chose David also, his servant, 
and took him from the sheep folds. He knows what it's like to, <laughs> to gather a wandering flock. From following the ewes great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. That's so beautiful. David, thanks for practicing with a literal flock of sheep. Are you ready to graduate? That was a good internship. Now you're ready to take command of all my people, Israel. They'll need a good shepherd too, and I don't know of any shepherds that are better than you. And notice the attributes that are listed at the end. The integrity of his heart and the skillfulness of his hands. That goes back to what Elder Bednar has taught repeatedly. That it, uh, quoting an earlier apostle, it's good to be faithful, but it's better to be faithful and competent. Okay, it's good to be worthy, but better to be worthy and ready. Nice to be clean, but clean and qualified. That sounds even better. So make sure that your heart is full of integrity. And while you're holding on to that, keep working on the skillfulness of your hands. I mean, they're sheep after all that you're leading. <laughs> They'll need your help. Psalm 79 then is a prayer for vengeance upon the Lord's enemies. But the psalmist here is also recognizing God's justice in all of this. We did do things to bring this destruction upon ourselves. But he does have a question. Remember earlier, if there's no prophet to be able to answer the question of how long, well, here's the question. As they lament over the destruction of Jerusalem, so probably a much later psalm, verse 5, they ask, How long, Lord? Wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? It's the only verse of this psalm I'll read to you, but when I hear that, I think of one of my favorite hymns in our hymn book, and it's based on this phrase from Israel's hymn book. It's a lesser known one. It comes from what Boyd K. Packer called the sealed portion of the hymn book, the ones that we never sing. It's hymn number 50, and it's called Come Thou Glorious Day of Promise. I love it. Uh, it came from Pratt's collection. I don't know if Parley had a hand in it or not, but Listen to the second verse, and does it sound like what we just read from Psalm 79.5? Lord, how long wilt thou be angry? Shall thy wrath forever burn? Rise, redeem thine ancient people, their transgressions from them turn. King of Israel, King of Israel, come and set thy people free. And that's always the prayer of the righteous when they haven't been so righteous and they're suffering. The whole hymn is beautiful. That's one worth learning. The 80th Psalm is next then. It's a community petition, again from Asaph. And in verse eight, here's what they're petitioning God for. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparedest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea, and her branches unto the river. Now Asaph seems to be setting us up for imagery like what we'll see in the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5. Or Lehi's explanation about the branch broken off. Or even Jacob's original patriarchal blessing to Joseph that that his tribes would be so fruitful that the, the tree would grow over the wall. 
Well, what's happening here, Israel is a choice vine. It was brought out of Egypt in the days of Moses. God cleared out a new planting ground in a promised land and planted Israel there, prepared room for it, and covered it with the shadow of his wings. He intended for it to grow into glorious plants of righteousness, trees of life. We talk about the cedars of Lebanon. Well, why, why are they off in Lebanon? Shouldn't they, such glorious trees be growing right here in the land of promise? Well, here's the problem. Verse 12, Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? Now, good question, but I think you're asking the wrong person. Was it God that broke down the hedge? Or was it the people? Because if God is our, our refuge, our protection, but we have alienated him by the way that we've lived, then we have broken down the hedge. We've opened the, the gates and lowered the drawbridge and enemies can come swarming in, which is exactly what happened when the northern tribe was scattered and the southern tribe was carried off captive into Babylon. In some ways, this reminds me of Doctrine and Covenants 101, when the Lord gives this interesting parable about a plant, a vineyard, that, or an olive trees that need to be protected, that need to have a tower, but the people just wouldn't build the tower. And so as the enemy comes from afar off, they don't see them coming, and it's too late to do anything about it. Same thing's happening here. So no wonder the petition finally comes in verse 14. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold, and visit this vine, and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. In the allegory of the olive tree, if the trees could speak, that's what they would say. God, please visit this vine. And dig and dung and prune and plant and graft and gather and, and water and weep. Wonder if there's anything more you could have done for your, for your vineyard because we need thy help. If we pray for that, then the Lord of the vineyard comes running and he continues to do all that he can within his power to change us, to redeem us. He does visit the vine. He planted you to begin with, and He cares about your growth. He wants to rejoice in the fruit that He can lay up unto Himself. That's what all this is for. Psalm 81, then, is a covenant renewal liturgy. We saw one of those earlier today. And so again, think about coming to the sacrament table, and here's a sacrament hymn for you as you renew your covenants with God. This one is also couched, like a previous one, in history. So as he walks through Israel's history, notice what he says in verse 10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. I'll fill it with food. I'll fill it with drink. I'll fill it with words to say. I'll fill it with reassurance. But what happens? But my people would not hearken to my voice. And Israel would none of me. I didn't want to have anything to do with me. That Talk about rejection. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust. I let them do what they wanted to do. I let them create their own gods after their own images. And sure enough, they walked in their own counsels. 
And you see where that got them? No, no wonder this is meant to help us renew our covenants. It warns us about what happens when we don't keep them. This is ingenious, persuasive power. Then he says in verse 13, Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. Sounds a lot like, how oft would I have gathered them as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings? But ye would not. Oh, that my people had hearkened, if only they had. Remember the famous couplet from John Greenleaf Whittier? For of all sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. I'll let those words cross your mind as you partake of the sacrament on Sunday. What might have been different about this week if I had remembered God a little more faithfully? And what might the coming week be if I can do better? Renew that covenant. Psalm 82 is one of our more famous ones because of one particular verse. To set it up, though, start at the beginning. This is a petition for divine justice, a psalm of Asaph. And in the first verse, he says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Now, that's good, but other translations are even clearer. How about this from the English Standard Version? God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, instead of calling it the congregation of the mighty, does the phrase, the divine council, now pierce the veil and <laughs> reverse our loss of memory, does it reintroduce us to the war in heaven and the grand council? That is the divine council. And God is taking his place in the midst of that council. This is Abraham 3, the noble and great are among him. Whom shall I send? And and as it says, in the midst of the gods, lowercase g, gods in embryo, children of God, meant to grow up to become like him. Oh, this is God presiding over premortality, presenting his plan. And unfortunately, though we accepted it and we shouted for joy, like Job told us, uh, since we got here, we haven't quite been doing as well as we told him we would. And so God chastises them for their injustice, for their neglect of the poor, for not keeping the covenant as presented in premortality. And then he says in verse 6 and 7, and here's the famous verse, I have said, ye are gods, lowercase g, and all of you are children of the Most High. You were there in that premortal council. You agreed to this. Next verse. But... Ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Evidently not the crown prince that's worthy to take his father's place on the throne. Interesting, those two verses, 6 and 7, side by side, it, it seems to present to us the contrary, we always have to prove, between dust and divinity. Or in their order, divinity and dust. You are lowercase g, gods. You are children of the Most High. Then why on earth would you... Die like men, having acted like mere men through your mortal probation. We have the potential to be like our parents in heaven if we'll only grow up in God and live up to it. What's amazing about that verse, oh, I've said already several times that the early saints 
knew the book of Psalms. They sang some and talked about some in the book of, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Paul knew the Psalms and quotes several in his epistles. Well, Jesus himself knew the Psalms too. I mean, many of them were messianic. That's his patriarchal blessing for crying out loud. So, of course, he knows the Psalms. But he knows Psalm 82, and he used it to defend himself. This is a fascinating passage. It's in John chapter 10. And the Jews are persecuting Jesus, and he asks them, Oh, um, for which of my good works are you persecuting me? Jesus had a bit of a sense of humor there. And they say in John 10 verse 33, Well, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. How dare you claim to be the Son of God? Uh, making that, That's blasphemy for you. And Jesus' response is incredible. Verse 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And they know the law inside and out, so they would know what he's quoting when he begins turning to Psalm 82. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are God's? So he's just quoted Psalm 82.6, and then he explains why he did so. If he called them gods, lowercase g, unto whom the word of God, capital G, came, and the scripture cannot be broken, and you all feel that, right? Then say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God? Again, I sense some humor there. Uh, although humor in outrage, some righteous indignation here. As Jesus is saying to them, quoting their own scripture that they know so well, why would you be so offended when I say I'm the son of God, when your own scriptures say you're all gods yourselves? I mean, he could have gone on and quoted the rest of the verse, ye are gods and children of the Most High, which would have said... <laughs> You're sons and daughters of God too, just like I am saying that I am. And they would have filled that in in their own heads when he starts the quote and doesn't finish it. But by starting only, and you only using that first line, ye are gods, <laughs> then why would you be so concerned that I'm, I'm just a mere son of God? I mean, you're gods yourselves. How to remind those that stood in the divine council, don't you know who you are? as well as don't you know who I am. There are beautiful passages scattered throughout the New Testament that proclaim our divine potential. Our wonderfully well-meaning evangelical Christian friends consider it scandalous. They call us out for blasphemy just like the Jews did to Jesus because we claim that we can be, grow up and become like God. Not to become not to take his place, not to leapfrog him or usurp his throne. No, the book of Revelation offers it, that throne. He's offering that throne to us, to share it with him. It's going to be an interesting throne, room for us all. But for Jesus to do something similar here is so beautiful. It's so powerful. And it's actually interesting that this doctrine survived in Eastern Christianity, even though it was swallowed up in the apostasy of the West. So most of the Christianity we're used to, Roman Catholicism and the Reformation on down, does not believe in the doctrine of deification, becoming like God, or apotheosis, if you want to use that term. There's some technical terms for that. But the Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodoxy, they love 
the doctrine of deification and still hold to it because the early, early Christians did. Paul taught it and Jesus taught it and the psalmist taught it for crying out loud. What do you think we were doing in the divine council that, Jesus, that God presided over? Psalm 82 is, is fascinating. It's got some great oh, history coming after the fact. But let's go on. Psalm 83. Here we have a community petition for protection from Asaph. He prays that God will confound Israel's enemies. All kinds of ites are listed in this, in this chapter. But he prays in verse 15 and 16, So persecute them with thy tempest. Make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame. Now, so far that sounds kind of harsh and mean-spirited. Right? Go persecute them. Go, go scare them to death. Go shame them. But notice why. That they may seek thy name, O Lord. Ah, okay. It wasn't quite as mean-spirited as I thought. Asaph is acknowledging that the purpose of God's punishment is redemption. It's meant to be redemptive rather than punitive. I'm not just trying to scare you and persecute you and shame you. I'm allowing some natural consequences of your sins, hopefully, to soften your heart. I'm praying that this is redemptive turbulence, as Elder Maxwell used to call it, and it will turn you back to me. And even if it doesn't turn you back, well, maybe it'll turn someone else. Verse 17 and 18, that's what he prays for. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish. You see, if they perish, then it's too late. Then the fear and the persecution and the shame hasn't served its, its proper purpose. Now it's too late. They're gone. But then still, what's the hope? That men, those who outlive them, may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. I mean, that goes back to the plagues of Egypt. Over and over, the language is that they may know that Jehovah is the Lord. So whether you have to learn from your own mistakes or whether you're wise enough to learn from the mistakes of others, punishment can come as a blessing if it serves as a cautionary tale to others or if it serves as education, even if it happens to be from the school of hard knocks. Learn from it. Turn to God and change. Psalm 84, we return to a song of Zion, written for the sons of Korah to perform there at the temple. And sure enough, temple is the focal point here. Verse 1, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. And what would that nest be? Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Selah. What a beautiful description of the temple. It's a friendly place. It's amiable. You ever seen the temple workers? They always have that smile on their face. They're the kindest angels ever. You feel lost and they're just, oh, I'm here to help. You don't know what to do? Oh, let me walk you through this. And those wonderful temple workers, my, as part of my son's service mission, he began serving at the temple and it's changing him in the most beautiful of ways. I love it. And for him to be amiable there is so wonderful. Uh, his, his soul, our soul, their souls, fainting for the courts of the Lord. 
I just want to be there. It's a house. It's a nest. Do you feel safe there? Does your soul long for it? And I just want to be at his altar. I want it to feel like home to me. Have you ever heard the Tabernacle Choir sing, My Shepherd Will Supply My Need? A beautiful hymn written by one of the great hymnists of history, Isaac Watts. How's this for how we ought to feel about the temple? Your sure provisions, gracious God, attend me all my days. In other words, this is a well-stocked house. This is a well-feathered nest. Oh, may your house be my abode and all my work be praise. In other words, can I live there? It's my abode. And what's my temple work going to be? It's going to be temple worship. It's going to be praising God all day. Next line. Here would I find a settled rest. And that's what the 84th Psalm is suggesting. While others go and come, no more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. It's those last phrases that I love the most. Sure, others may just come and go, and they pop in for a session here or there, and let enough time pass between them that they can't quite remember uh, what temple ordinances are, are for. But what about those who want to make it a dwelling place, an abode for themselves? It goes from stranger to guest to child at home. Have you ever been to somebody else's house and felt like a stranger there and you really don't feel very welcome? Maybe that's how you felt in the temple the first time you went. I don't understand what's going on. Just keep going. Remember, eat the, from the tree of life, not from the tree of knowledge that first time. Just go and behold the beauty of the Lord. Don't worry about inquiring him at him at his, at his temple or of him at his temple. But go longer and you start feeling like a guest. Like, oh, he wants me here. Um, and I come and then I go. And, but that was, I was a welcome guest. Best of all, as you continue to worship there, is it starts to feel so know, like home that you're a child. And you... I had friends' houses like that when I was a kid growing up. And I felt like a child at home. And I called my friend's parents mom and dad, just like I called my own parents mom and dad. And the refrigerator opened to me just as well as it opened to their actual <laughs> physical children, biological kids. But I love them, and, and they loved me, and we still do. And so I'm, I'm grateful that the Lord treats us like that. And if you've ever had your home temple and served there often enough that the workers know you by name and they're happy to see you again. That, that is a beautiful thing. No wonder he can say in verse 10, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Better than a thousand days anywhere else. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Oh, any chance to be in the temple for any time at all. Even if I just get a day, that's oh, better than than days upon days anywhere else. And even if I'm just a doorkeeper, can I play any role at all? I remember coming home from my mission and just dreaming of building the kingdom for the rest of my life. Never having to fully come home from my mission, to go bore my ear through with an awl, right? Attach me to the house of God forever. And my dream was to teach seminary and institute. And, and thankfully God allowed me to do that. 
But I remember even thinking, what else? If that doesn't work, because I know it's competitive, what can I do? Um, can I, I, I honestly thought, like, can I be a bodyguard to the brethren? Um, I, I was still in shape back then. I'm like, can I work out and learn how to do that? Can I be a gardener on Temple Square or like at a temple somewhere and just plant flowers? And I just, I just wanted to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I, and I still do. And even if that's all I ever get to do, to be that close, there's a child at home. And when you're home and when you're a child, you know the parents who live there. They're your parents. Psalm 85, let's go on to that. This is a prayer for forgiveness, a psalm for the sons of Korah. It may have been sung by those returning from Babylonian exile, and if so, these words seem appropriate. Verse 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now that last line should remind us of something the Lord says to Enoch in Moses chapter 7. In verse 62, he prophesies, Righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. It's exactly what we saw here in Psalm 85. But what's it for? To bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, yea, and also the resurrection of all men, and righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth. And so, no wonder if they're returning from exile, if scattered Israel is beginning to be gathered home, how's that going to happen? It's going to happen because truth comes from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Now, specifically for those, if this is returned from the Babylonian exile, truth from the earth, well, could that even be just the records that were kept by the the Persians and what Isaiah had prophesied about Cyrus. We saw that with Ezra and Nehemiah. They go check the records. Look at your history. We're allowed to do this. And yes, we can return. There's truth. Righteousness from heaven. Is that Isaiah's prophecy? The revelation that came to him? Is that oh, a merciful God working upon the heart of Cyrus of Persia? Well, if, it's, if that was just preview of coming attractions, then how about the final gathering of Israel in the last days? Truth from the earth? Sound like the Book of Mormon? Righteousness from heaven sound like revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants? Sound like the ministering of angels? Sound like the restoration of the priesthood? First vision, an angel Moroni, you name it. This is the restoration taking place. And it is meant to gather God's elect from the four quarters of the earth. It's beautiful. This is gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. I will say one other thing, though, before we go on to Psalm 86. Notice the attributes, because they come in pairs. I mean, the one, it's truth from the earth and righteousness from heaven. But then he takes truth and couples it with something. And he takes righteousness and couples, this, couples it with something. And when I see coupled attributes, you better believe I think of proving contraries. And sure enough, what are the contraries here? Truth is coupled with mercy and righteousness is coupled with peace. Which stands to reason because truth and righteousness can sometimes seem unbending if we're not living up to them. They can seem, oh, that's, that's the justice side of God, and I'm sometimes scared of his justice. So how does God temper that without robbing from it? He provides mercy to soften truth, and he provides peace to reassure us when we fall short of righteousness. I love this. And 
Notice how he put it. Mercy and truth are met together. Like, oh, pleased to meet you. Oh, you're my, you're like my other half. Mercy says to truth, I, I need your strength to, so I don't become codependent. And truth says, oh, I, but I need your softness and kindness because I, I can sometimes scare people away. So I, I, I'm honored to meet you. Um, what are you doing this weekend? Well, and they start to spend more time together until this beautiful romance begins to bloom. Uh, because look at the next phrase, righteousness and peace. Righteousness is just truth and peace is just mercy. But righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Oh, well, a blooming romance. That's blossoming. Wonderful. Because it really is a match made in heaven. And when you can find contraries and have them <laughs> share a kiss of connection... Uh, when they become sealed one with each other by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. That's where it's happening. Matchmaker, matchmaker, oh yes. <laughs> God is the ultimate. Psalm 86. The desire for God, the superscription simply calls it a prayer of David, but he's praying for God. He prays for mercy, trusts that he'll receive it. Verse 5, he says, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Just eager, anxious to do it. The moment we'll repent. And plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. You see, David knew the nature of God. And that's why he trusted in divine forgiveness. It's like Enos when he prays for forgiveness and God says, Enos, you're forgiven. And what's Enos say? I, my guilt was swept away because I knew that God could not lie. It wasn't just God's words that reassured Enos. It was the attributes that allowed him to trust in those words. God is truth. And so if he says I'm clean, then I'm clean. Because he can't lie to me. David is saying similar things. Good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy. Then verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. A united heart? Well, I only have one of them. I mean, lots of our body parts, President Nelson, Dr. Nelson has even talked about this. Two eyes and two ears and two kidneys and two of a lot of things because the body wants to build in some redundancy in case one of them goes bad. But only one heart? That would be a good one to have a, a second, right? Just in case? No, we only have one heart. So don't we already have a unified heart? Oh, that's the problem. I guess we do have more than one heart. Yikes. We have the heart of the spiritual child of God, but we also have the heart of the natural man or woman. And what's David praying for since he's been pulled in both directions? A heart like the Lord, but also a heart that was drawn to Bathsheba in a way it shouldn't have been. He prays that God will unite his heart. Just take out... We talk about double-mindedness. Well, here's double-heartedness. I remember my wife actually saying this about the word integrity. And she said, what, I, what she loves about integrity is its connection to the word integer. And I remember thinking, what? That sure seems like a stretch etymologically. My wife was an English major. I should never have doubted her. Sorry, honey. And her insight was profound once it made sense to me. So I think about it. An integer is a whole number. And think about an a person of integrity is whole. 
You see, if it's not an integer, then it's a fraction. And either something's missing or it has a little too much. And that's usually where we get into trouble. We're missing some Christ-like attributes or we've added some things that we should have never have developed. We're, we're not an integer. And we therefore don't have true integrity. Pray for, that's a good prayer. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Please make me whole in thee. Then verse 12, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, especially if I just have one to, to praise you with. I will glorify thy name forevermore, for great is thy mercy toward me. And thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. Remember last week when we saw in Psalm 16, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Well, this is a repetition of that. You have delivered my soul from the lowest hell. And how can I not praise you for the abundance of mercy? So he does again, verse 15. Thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Both of them. There's the contrary again, mercy and truth. Of course, they're still together. I mean, they kissed in the last chapter. Uh, they're staying together. They always will. And don't forget, all of those wonderfully soft-hearted uh, adjectives, they're referring to the God of the Old Testament. Yeah. The one that everybody thinks is angry and vengeful and mean and so different from gentle Jesus of the New Testament. Uh, look again. Full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy, as well as in truth. Then Psalm 87, another song of Zion. This may also have been written during or just after the exile as they're returning home. It says in verse 1, his foundation is in the holy mountains. And yes, that's geography, but it's also theology. The holy mountains, this is the mountain of the Lord. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Selah. I mean, if you're looking for an equivalent in our modern hymn book, uh, the title would tell you. Hymn 46 is, Glorious things of thee are spoken, which is exactly what we just read in Psalm 87. The first verse of that hymn says, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken chose thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake our sure repose? With salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayest smile on all thy foes. Oh, there's a song of Zion indeed. It's followed, however, in Psalm 88 by a desperate plea for help. As glorious as Psalm 87 is and its predecessors, Psalm 88 might just be the bleakest prayer in this entire book. And if you've ever felt this low, then this psalm might resonate. Verse 2 and 3 captures it well. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. My life draweth nigh unto the grave. And with death staring him in the face, this is what he wonders. Verse 10 and 11. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Selah. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? 
Now that's all the psalm I'll read to you, but think about the questions he's asking. Now he's asking from a place of despondency and depression and darkness. That's why he's wondering about the dark and the forgetfulness. It's the grave. The land of forgetfulness is the grave. Will the world forget me? Will I forget the world? Is there anything that happens there? People don't tend to come back and return and report on the afterlife. So, wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Well, that's the beauty of God's self-revelation. Because we do know that the answer to that is a resounding yes. God does show wonders to the dead. Shall the dead arise and praise thee? You better believe they will. That's the resurrection that erupts in rejoicing. And to think about what happens in the spirit world, I mean, think about Doctrine and Covenants 138 and the work for the dead that takes place there. Wonders to the dead, yes, and we get to participate in it. We get to go to the temple, the house of the Lord, and, and participate in the proof God gives the world that death is not the end. God's work and glory will continue beyond the grave. Wonderful things happening in the spirit world. And that and happening in the temple. Psalm 89, then, this is a beautiful one. This is a plea that God will remain faithful. Well, of course he will. We know that. He is bound when we do what he says. But I know, I just maybe this prayer is more for me then. I hope to be as faithful to God as God is to me. And this is a messianic psalm, that would be fitting, by one named Ethan the Ezraite, some lesser known temple musician. But I love what he writes. Verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. And they need to know about that faithfulness. Verse 6, for who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? He really is incomparable after all. Who in heaven? Yeah, nobody quite that lofty. Here on earth, even less. I mean, look for the mighty, but no one can hold a candle to the light of the world. Verse 14, justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. There they are, this wonderful couple, still getting along swimmingly. Uh, compare that to the things that we enthrone and the things that we follow. Now, if justice and judgment are there at his throne, if mercy and truth go before him, I fear that we're following lesser attributes and we can repent of that. Ethan then goes on and sings of David, the anointed king. And ah, okay, now, is that, now we're getting to the messianic part. If we're speaking of this anointed one, that's what Messiah means. Uh, verse 26, he shall cry unto me, thou art my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. So here's a steadfast covenant between a father and a son. The son says to the father, thou art my father, my God, I'm holding to you. And the, and the father says to the son, thou art my firstborn. You're higher than the kings of the earth. So yes, this refers to David, one of those kings of the earth. Thou art my firstborn to rule upon an earthly throne in Jerusalem. But if this is higher than all the kings, then this is the king of kings. 
Ah, Messianic prophecy. This is Jesus and the Son claiming the Father and the Father claiming the Son in a covenant that will stand fast forever. This is what the whole plan of salvation is writing on. In verse 29, his seed also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now, who are we talking about? Is this David's seed? Oh, well, sure. Solomon was on the throne. Rehoboam was on the, on the throne. We have the, a whole Davidic monarchy that's a dynasty. But hmm, seed, remember we saw this, was it back at the end of Psalm 22? Seed and generation. And tying the psalm into Isaiah 53 and into Mosiah 15 and the seed of Christ are those that will follow him. That's his generation that spreads the gospel to all the ends of the earth. Well, if it's the seed of Christ, then that's us. And we are meant to endure forever and bring people to the throne of heaven. But, verse 30, If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now, that doesn't sound too promising, but it does sound true to form, sadly. I mean, it was David's grandson, Rehoboam, that alienated ten tribes. And we saw through the reigns of the kings, both north and south, that the wicked ones outnumbered the righteous ones. So if his children forsake my law, yeah, then they're going to get visited with stripes and the rod. That doesn't sound too good for wayward children, does it? Because again, if we're talking not just David's seed, but Christ's seed, and that's us, we're supposed to be following him, and times, and at times we don't. But don't end at verse 32 with that bad news. Read verse 33 and 34, and this is some of the most glorious news you'll ever read if you're the parent of a prodigal. Nevertheless, so despite the fact that your children have forsaken the law and aren't walking in the judge, God's judgments and are breaking his statutes and not keeping the commandments, in spite of the fact that they're suffering as a result of it, nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips." Could there be more comforting words anywhere in Scripture to the parent of any child who is wandering from the path? My loving kindness, I'm not going to take away. I'll still love them. I'll still be kind to them. I'm not going to suffer my faithfulness to fail. They haven't been faithful, but that doesn't mean I should be any less faithful than I eternally am. And specifically, I'm not going to break my covenant even if they have. We'll see that portrayed graphically in the story of Hosea near the end of this year. I'm not going to alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. And what's gone out of his lips? Oh, a promise that he'll set the solitary in families. A promise that he'll go after every lost sheep. A promise that he'll gather those that have been scattered. A promise made to you in holy places that the hearts of the fathers will turn to the children and the hearts of the children will turn to the fathers. 
a promise that what is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Like Joseph Smith once said to parents who had lost, lost their children physically to death, all your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection. By the visions of the Almighty, I have seen it. Now think of that. Wayward children, trust the covenant. Trust the atonement. Trust the grace of God. And trust that he is not giving up on your child even when you are tempted to do so. He plays the long game. I've told my students frequently, I don't believe in permanent bad news. It's against my religion. Now, yes, we have to honor the agency of those children, but don't underestimate the pull of parental love and parental covenants. And I mean parental with a lowercase p, you mom and dad, and a capital P, heavenly parents that are even more concerned about that wayward child than you are. You may know of this quote from Orson F. Whitney, because when I say trust in the grace of God and trust the atonement and trust the covenant, trust your sealing ordinance, I could also add trust in the tentacles of divine providence. This is what Orson F. Whitney said. The prophet Joseph Smith declared, and he never taught more comforting doctrine, that the eternal sealings of faithful parents and the divine promises made to them for valiant service in the cause of truth would save not only themselves, but likewise their posterity. Though some of the sheep may wander, the eye of the shepherd is upon them, and sooner or later they will feel the tentacles of divine providence reaching out after them and drawing them back to the fold. Either in this life or the life to come, since we do know that he shows wonders to the dead, right? They will return. They will have to pay their debt to justice. They will suffer for their sins. Doctrine and Covenants 19 tells us that. They may tread a thorny path, but if it leads them at last, like the penitent prodigal, to a loving and forgiving father's heart and home, the painful experience will not have been in vain. So what's Elder Whitney's counsel? Pray for your careless and disobedient children. Hold on to them with your faith. Hope on, trust on, till you see the salvation of God. I think that is one of the most beautiful promises ever said in a conference talk. But in some ways it's not any different than what we just saw in Psalm 89. I'm not going to alter the things that went out of my lips. And I promised good news to the faithful. Now, please don't take Elder Whitney's words without taking all the rest of everyone else's words together. We've got to prove the contrary. And Elder Whitney's words are on the mercy side. But remember, mercy is, has met truth. And righteousness has kissed peace. And so we need to make sure that justice and mercy are not at odds with one another. And so that's why I mentioned section 19. And that's why Elder Whitney mentioned they may have to suffer for sin. Uh, there's still agency involved. In fact, the best talk I've ever seen on Elder Whitney's quote and how it fits with everything else is a message that Elder Bednar gave in the end sign of, in March of 2014. 
So if you haven't read that one, go and reread this one. It's called Faithful Parents and Wayward Children. And he quotes Elder Whitney, also quotes Elder or President James E. Faust, who wrestles with Elder Whitney's comment to try to make sure it's not going to be taken out of context, uh, in the, and the context being justice as well as mercy. Okay. Um, again, we're looking for the Goldilocks zone here. If you're a lackadaisical parent, then don't even think of reading Elder Whitney because it's like, ah, oh, they're going to come back. It'll be fine. We don't have to worry about it. Mm. But if you're on the opposite extreme and you are feeling hopeless, like you might feel after Psalm 89, 30 to 32, then keep reading 33 and 34. Do, do read Elder Whitney's statement. Uh, and again, with the help of President Faust and in that beautiful message from Elder Bednar, find your way into the Goldilocks zone where because of faith and great anxiety, there's another contrary, it will be given to you by the Holy Ghost what you should do for your children. That's Jacob's promise. And he knew a thing or two about wayward children. He had one in Enos until Enos turned it around. He had one in older brothers, Laman and Lemuel. And I still don't think the story is over for them. Oh, we have hope. And, and we see it right here in the Psalms. Psalm 90, then, is a community petition for divine mercy. The superscription assigns this one to Moses. It's the only psalm attributed to him. But if, it, if he did write it, this is, sounds like something Moses could say. Verse 4, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. After all, Moses won. He got to see everything and all the history of the world and the particles thereof and, and the universe itself, worlds without number. A thousand years? Oh, it's a blink of an eye. That's just yesterday. He goes on, verse 5 and 6, Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. That's how fast things can change. And if you've ever been in a desert climate where it's green one day and brown the next, rainy season ended or spring quickly turned to a, a premature summer, that's how fast things can go. And Moses, sure enough, saw the pride cycle happen frequently with his people and the pendulum swing back and forth between righteousness and wickedness. Verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Interesting phrase there. God does want us to see where we're falling short. So he sets our sins right before us, even the secret ones. And how does he shine a light on those? Well, he just said, in the light of his countenance. Hmm, yikes. Now, Isaiah will say something about the countenance, but it's ours, and it's a wicked one. He says that the, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. In other words, guilt is written all over our face. And what makes that so obviously guilty, it's looking in the mirror as the Savior stands beside us. And we see our face right next to His. We see our secret sins in the light of His countenance. And no wonder we need to change so that we can have His image engraven in our countenance. I want to look like Him. They say in a Good marriage, the longer you're married, the more you look like your spouse, which is the worst news in the world for my wife, but the best news in the world for me. Well, the same could be said of our, our sealing to the Savior. 
I don't want him to look more like me, although the condescension might say something about that. But he does make me look more like him as he works within me. There's something beautiful there. But again, that contrast, that juxtaposition. To me, it sounds like the story of Dorian Gray, or the picture of Dorian Gray. Did you ever read that? That's haunting. When he continues to look so good on the outside. Oh, I look like the Savior. But what's happening to the painting, the portrait? It's taking on the visage of, of all the wickedness that he's committing. We've got to repent of that. In verse 10, this psalm says, The days of our years are threescore and ten. That's the basic allotment. You live to be 70. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, like you even made it to age 80, and in our day, people like President Hinckley and President Nelson are making that look like nothing. But if you made it that far, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, this goes back to the psalm we saw from the, the old timers. And you've been with me since birth, but that was a long time ago. And here I am gray-headed and whew, you're still here for me, right? Well, yeah, I, he is. But here... Interesting the way that Moses, if he's the one doing it, and Moses lives to be, what, 120 before he's taken up to God? Uh, and here, even if he made it to 80, I'll put it this way. Like I said with President Hinckley and President Nelson, we keep living longer and longer lives. 70 seems like nothing anymore. 80 doesn't even seem like that big a deal. But unfortunately, as we've prolonged life, it's the end of it we've prolonged. Like, can we slow down like our 20s and 30s, please? If I want an extra 20 years of life, then stack it on the front end. Because by the end, yeah, it's labor and sorrow. It's, it's rough going. And so what do we do with the years that God has given us? That's, I think, what Moses is really getting at. If our life is meant to be three score and ten, and if the end is rough pretty much regardless then what do I do with my life? Well, verse 12 is a good answer. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That's great advice. If we were to number our days, if we were to realize that the clock is ticking and we won't be young forever and we're not invincible and this is the days of our mortal probation, the time to prepare to meet God, then prepare to meet Him. Be wise. Apply your hearts unto that wisdom and you will live a life that has prepared you to meet God. Psalm 91 then is a song of trust and it's another messianic one. In verse 4, He, God that is, shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. No wonder Jesus would say repeatedly in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Because there it is. He's going to cover us with his feathers. That's the velvet and steel, right? That's under his wings, we'll trust. That's Ruth under the skirt of Boaz. But notice what he said at the end. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. And that's the, the steel part and not just the velvet part. It's his truth and not just his mercy. I think we often think that it's only God's love, his kindness, his compassion, his mercy that protects us. And it does, but his 
truth does too. Keep the commandments and we will prosper in the land. His truth is as much an evidence of his desire to save us as his love is. And we will be saved as much by the justice of God as by the mercy of God. He proves the contraries perfectly. Verse 5 then, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. He seems to be switching back and forth between day and night, between the seen and the unseen, between enemies that are visible and tangible and you might be able to guard against, but then others that they just come out of the dark and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, there's something God can do about it, and he does if we are faithful. We will be protected even while those all around us are exposed. And then in verse 10, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now we've seen... Jesus quotes Psalms, we've seen Paul quote Psalms, we've seen the early Christians quote Psalms. Well, do you remember when Satan quoted a Psalm? Oh yeah, he knows the scriptures pretty well too. And so in the second temptation, Jesus overcame the temptation in the wilderness, changed the stones to bread. Oh no thanks, because the scriptures say, thus it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. I know my Deuteronomy. And then Jesus goes to the temple, good place to be, or a good place to go if you're trying to get away from Satan. But Lucifer comes even there to tempt Jesus and say, well, since you quoted scripture right before you ditched me, let me pick up where you left off and I'll jump from Deuteronomy to Psalms. How's that? Why don't you throw yourself from the temple to prove to the people that you're the son of God because according to the Psalms, God has given the angels charge concerning you, and they'll come sweeping in for this amazing save, lest you dash your foot against a stone, and the world will know exactly who you are. I mean, you'll be fulfilling a messianic prophecy, a messianic psalm, and thus they will know that you are the Messiah. So, prove it. And Jesus quotes another scripture to put Satan back in his place. The 92nd Psalm is a Sabbath Psalm. According to the superscription, it's a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. It deals with the creation, and that's a good arrow to the, to the Sabbath. And it mentions God seven times. And seven days of creation until the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, that's a good hint as well. But let's just read verse 12 through 14. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Now in our day, I don't know how we feel about being fat, but in those days, that meant you had enough to eat. So to be fat and flourishing, oh, open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing. And sure enough, the Lord does. 
And he does it on the Sabbath so often. A day when we can enter into the rest of the Lord, which section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants defines as the fullness of God's glory. Now that's glorious. I'm a palm tree. I'm a cedar of Lebanon. The Lord visits his vine. Well, he's been doing some good digging and dunging because I'm turning out. I'm planted in the house of the Lord and flourishing in the courts of God. Sabbath is his temple. The temple is our sanctuary in space, and the Sabbath is our sanctuary in time. And to have sacred time and sacred space, that's a place to be with God and time to be with God. And God has carved it out of a secular week and a secular world. Hymn 93, let's see this hymn to God. In verse 1, the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. That verse is filled with clothing language. Clothed, clothed, girded. And with all the talk of temples in the Psalms, let's assume that this is one as well, that we are seeing clothing language in terms of holy garments of glory and beauty. Verse 5, thy testimonies are very sure. Yeah, they are. You can bank on them. Holiness becometh thine house. That's why I felt like it was okay to assume temple imagery in the first verse. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. And I love the way he puts that. It becometh thy house. It's just, it's fitting there. When we say, oh, that, that shirt, that color really becomes you. Yeah, the, the holiness is really befitting of the house of God. It does say holiness of the Lord on the outside, after all. And holy must we be when we enter. And if we are holy, oh, then it becomes us as well. We feel like we fit in, and, and the temple feels more and more like home, so that we can go from stranger to guest to child at home, like we saw already. Now, 94 is a community petition. And this is a psalm that condemns the wicked and prays that the Lord will take vengeance upon them. Another one that sounds kind of rough, but as we saw earlier, it's, this is supposed to be redemptive turbulence, if they'll take it. How about this, verse 5 through 7. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. That's why we're asking that you'll come to our aid. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Those are the groups that the Lord always seems to list together paying special notice, provides special care. Yet they say, so the people that are slaying the widows and strangers, they say this, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. They're feeling invincible. They're immune to the consequences or condemnation that should come as a result of their action or inaction toward the poor and the needy. So wake up call, verse 8. Understand ye brutish among the people, and ye fools... When will ye be wise? And here's the, here's the wisdom. He that planted the ear, uh, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heart, shall not he correct? And he that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? That is such a great wake-up call. Such a great slap in the face of the brutish and foolish. If God made it, he probably knows how to use it. <laughs> I mean, if he gave you an eye, 
assume he's got one. If he gave you an ear, then rest assured he can hear what you're saying behind closed doors. Oh, hiding from God? Are you kidding me? No. By the way, this is an amazing passage to suggest the, the anthropomorphic nature of God, if you want to get technical. That if we are created in the image of God, that, we see that in Genesis 1. But I love it the way it's put here almost oh, sarcastically uh, in Psalm 94. God sees because he has eyes like we do. He hears because he has ears like we do. He feels because he has a heart like we do. And he wants us to turn all those body parts to him so he can remake us after his full divine image. Ye are God's children of the most, of the most high. He then says in verse 18, When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. I've honestly lost track of how many times the Psalms have talked about feet and slipping and sliding or staying steady. Well, here, is it too late because I've slipped? Oh, no. God's mercy is still there to hold you up. Or how about verse 19? In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. We've talked today already about mental illness. Well, how about some mental health right there? Our thoughts don't have to be our enemy. The mind that too often controls us can also, also be controlled by us, and we can turn those thoughts to God. And I love the way he puts it, in the multitude of my thoughts within me. I'm just thinking, thy comforts delight my soul. Think about God. Ponder his gospel. Meditate day and night upon the glories of the kingdom and just wait for your life to improve. As a man thinketh, so is he. Well, think better things. They will delight your soul. And then we have a bunch of hymns, fairly brief until the end of today's, this week's material, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. These are often called enthronement hymns, and they are hymns of celebration. I mean, if there are, are feasts and balls and banquets at, a, at an inauguration of a mere American president, <laughs> then imagine the king of Israel, or better yet, the capital king of Israel, the king of kings, and he's worth celebrating. So look at 95.1. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Well, what do you think we've been doing for the last 94 chapters? That, exactly that. We are making a joyful noise and we're joyful about it because we see the King of Kings. He's coming. There's the enthronement and what's there not to make a joyful noise about? And why should we do it? Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. There's the good shepherd again. I shall not want. And since that's the case, keep reading. Today, if we will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, when you provoked him, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. There's another example of please be wiser than we have been. 
please be humbler than we were. Don't harden your heart against him. Just keep it soft. Keep it celebrating. Keep it in the Psalms. The next one, 96, will keep you in that same state. It's another hymn of praise. I guess 95 Psalms wasn't enough for you to praise God sufficiently. So verse 1, keep going, keep singing. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Maybe the first 95, we've, been, we've seen some repetition. Maybe we sing the same old songs too often in sacrament meetings. So let's, let's come up with a new one. We are getting a new hymn book soon. I, I'm so excited. Uh, come Thou Fount of Every Blessing is supposed to be back in it. And that thrills me. But what would this new song be? I don't know. But sing unto the Lord, all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen. His wonders among all people. Oh, how can I keep from singing and always with new anthems of praise? We've seen the psalm of, or the song of Moses and Miriam. We saw the song of Hannah. Next year we'll see the song of Mary, the Magnificat. We see songs in the Doctrine and Covenants. Oh, we'll sing a new song in the book of Revelation. We'll hear hymn 96 or Psalm 96. Yeah, sing a new song. You know, it's funny. I, uh, I can play the piano, not as well as my daughters, but uh, my mom didn't believe in uh, agency as a child. It was Satan's plan on the piano bench, and we had to learn. And I'm grateful for it, okay? Uh, I admit that, Mom. Thank you. And to me, though, there have been times where I've just wished I could compose music. I have some friends that can, uh, an old colleague of mine that is as good as they come. Uh, it's amazing. And, but I remember once just, I had some words, I, I've written a little poetry, and I just sat down at the piano and was trying to come up with a tune to capture what I was feeling, and I couldn't do it. And I kept playing with notes and nothing sounded right until I found something. I'm like, oh, this is so good. And I was so excited until I realized, oh, I love it because I've heard it rats. Um, let me try something else. And anytime I came up with something that sounded good, it was familiar. And I'm like, ah, I mean, the eight years that I spent in Tennessee, uh, I was amazed at the musical talent among the young singles in Nashville. And many of them are songwriters and performers. And I was blown away that they could, they could just crank out new songs all the time. Me, as I tried it as a teenager, I honestly remember thinking at the time, I guess all the good melodies are taken since I can't come up with anything new. And then I'd hear a new song on the radio and go, oh, okay, fine, well, except that one. That one was cool. But now, we're, now we've maxed out. <laughs> trust me, we haven't maxed out. And trust God, we'll never max out. There will always be new things to learn of Him, new wonders to behold, and therefore new songs to sing. Sing them. In verse 8 and 9, how's this for a new anthem of praise? Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. And that's infinite. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Ah, another temple text. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Oh, worshiping God in the beauty of holiness, that's worship? That's giving God the glory due His name? Huh. So, 
what he really wants me to do to honor him is to try to become like him, to become as beautifully holy as he is. I love the beautiful way that Elder Maxwell said it. If we choose the course of steady improvement, which is clearly the course of discipleship, we will become more righteous and can move from what may be initially a mere acknowledgement of Jesus onto admiration of Jesus, then onto adoration of Jesus, and finally to emulation of Jesus. That's worshiping him in the beauty of holiness. That's singing the new song and not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk. It's adoration through emulation. That's faces side by side with an amazing family resemblance. Then 97, another psalm of celebration. This one celebrating the second coming and the millennium. Verse 1, the Lord reigneth. How's that for millennial reign? Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. There's the tribulation of the last days. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. Now, yes, those do seem to be dark days and scary times and perilous times shall come. That's the last days. And yet the earth is rejoicing and it's glad. Now, clouds and darkness, that sounds a little rough. Uh, fire emanating from his throne. But wait a minute. What got Israel to the promised land? A cloud of smoke, a pillar of fire. Oh, okay. We're just trying to do the same for God to come to his, for Christ to come to his promised land, the earth in its paradisiacal glory. Keep going with second coming imagery and you see in verse 5 and 6, the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. I mean, no wonder the celestialized earth looks like a sea of glass and fire. It's melted like wax. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Now every knee is bowing. Now every tongue is confessing that he is the Christ. This is the new song we'll all be singing. And it echoes with another refrain in the 98th Psalm. Yet another hymn of celebration. The superscription undersells it. It just says, a psalm. Yeah, that's it. But in some ways that's perfect because that's what every psalm should be. Celebrating God. It doesn't need a specific writer behind it. It doesn't need a specific audience in front of it. It doesn't need a specific historical backstory to contextualize it. No, praise of the eternal God goes beyond any moment in time. This is infinite. This is eternal. And so we sing in verse 4, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Now next, let's bring in some musical instruments, shall we? And we started with a joyful noise, then we turn up the volume, it's now louder. But we're rejoicing, we're singing praise. And now, sing unto the Lord with the harp. Ah, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. Now it's wonderful to have the string section come on board, but let's keep crescendoing, shall we? Let's add some brass, and we'll really raise the roof. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. And by now, of course, all of creation wants in on this chorus. Even the seas want to add to the symphony. So let the sea roar. 
and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Does this sound like all creatures of our God and King to you? Oh, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia, which means praise Jehovah, praise the Lord. Whether it's the burning sun or the silver moon or the rushing wind or the sailing clouds, whether it's the rising morn or the evening light or flowing water pure and clear, how everything making music for the Lord to hear. <laughs> when I was in Alaska a few years ago, and a wonderful, wonderful couple took me out on the sound uh, to see the glaciers and to see whales and eagles and some serious glory of creation, I felt to sing a song of celebration. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. I, I don't know if I'd ever been in a place that awe-inspiring, that majestic. And I went to the back of the boat. I excused myself from these friends and went to the back of the boat where I knew that the engines of this big ship would drown out my singing. Oh, I guess I have a little bit of self-respect. I didn't want to be totally embarrassed, but I, I, I had to sing. And so I went down back to the engines and at the top of my lungs just belted out all creatures of our God and King. And yes, I imagine the sea wanted to roar and echoing my rejoicing. That the floods wanted to clap their hands and the hills, I mean the glaciers were calving off into the sea. <laughs> they just wanted to splash right alongside me as we rejoiced in our Creator. He deserves that kind of rejoicing. So go outside and sing. Go find a place where your jaw drops without you meaning for it to. Look at the stars at night. Look at a vast expanse. Go wherever you need to go. And go mentally if you can't go physically. Go spiritually most of all. And sing. Alleluia. We have two more psalms to sing today. And our second to last one is more Alleluia. 99 is another enthronement hymn. It's the last in its series. That was 93 and then 95 through 99, like I mentioned. And verse 1 begins with, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. And then the psalm ends in verse 9 with, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Start to finish the bookends of this celebration song, this enthronement hymn. I mean, speaking of throne, he's sitting between the cherubim. That's on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. What do we call that again? Oh yeah, the throne of grace. And here is grace personified, sitting on his throne in the Holy of Holies, beckoning us to come, to come boldly to the throne of grace, the mercy seat. Come to me. You'll come with celebration, and I'll be celebrating too. Come worship at my holy 
hill. This whole psalm is surrounded by temple imagery. And then Psalm 100, our final anthem of praise for today. It's as a call to all nations. And according to the superscription, what are the nations to do? It's a psalm of praise. That's fitting. Now that the, the King of Kings has been enthroned with all of those enthronement psalms, it's time to honor the King of Kings. Millennial reign right before us. It has seven invitations. And seven, that great symbolic number of perf perfection and wholeness and totality. So can we completely come unto Christ and fully, totally honor him by doing these seven things? Make, serve, come, know, enter, thank, and bless. You'll see them all as we read all five verses of this beautiful psalm. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. We've been doing that a hundred psalms so far. Serve the Lord and do it with gladness. It's not a day on the chain gang. We get to do something to God, to, for God to show him our love. Next invitation, come. Come before his presence with singing. He wants us with him. Next invitation, know. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, feel these things. Worship, like I said at the end of last week's lesson, worship is not something that we do alone. It's something we do because of something we feel about something we believe. And if we believe that, if we heed his invitation to know him as our God and know ourselves as his children, sheep that the, the good shepherd loves, then how can we not sing? How can we not make a joyful noise? How can we not serve the Lord with gladness? How can we not come? Because we want to be with him. We're going to come rushing. What's the next invitation? In fact, what is it that will fill us with all of this joy? Look at verse 4. It's gratitude. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. That's invitation five, six, and seven. Enter. Come. You're a child at home. Be thankful. That's all I'm asking for. That's the sacrifice of gratitude. And bless my name. It will come naturally, as I've done so much to bless you. And if this gratitude and praise comes so naturally, what is it that we're so grateful for? Here's where we'll end. Verse 5. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Oh, so nice to see that happy couple again. <laughs> mercy and truth. And it's an eternal marriage, because the mercy is everlasting, and the truth endureth to all generations. And so this celestial couple, oh, no wonder they come together in the goodness of God. That's the higher unifying principle. It's simply who God is. He is as truthful as he is merciful, and he is as merciful as he is true. There's justice and mercy coming together perfectly. And I pray that we will be equally grateful for his truth 
as for his mercy. That we will praise him for his commandments as much as for his kindness. Because both are required for us to be saved. It's interesting to see that the goodness of God is such that he holds both intention. Like we've talked about with Abinadi and the priests of Noah, the guilt gap is also the grace gap. And it would be ungood of God, untrue of God to lower the standard. Oh, but isn't that merciful? No. Mercy is filling the guilt gap with grace so that it becomes the grace gap. And holding his truth firm forever to everlasting, but filling that space with mercy so that we can gradually grow up in God and change our behaviors to come into line with our beliefs, to fill the measure of our creation. And our Creator has made all of that possible. If He lowered His truth, it wouldn't be an act of mercy. It would be robbing Him of the chance to be merciful at all. Because there's no standard that we're falling short of. No, He holds the standard. He keeps the truth. But mercy allows us to come into keeping it ourselves. So profound. He, this is perfect balance. This is the Lord's perfect contrary. Last thing I'll say today is a story behind Psalm 100 that to me says volumes about the Lord that we're singing about. It's a story about B.H. Roberts. I'm an incredibly wise man, very, very intelligent, uh, amazing Latter-day Saint, and an amazing patriot. He was a chaplain in the United States military during World War I. But he was a Latter-day Saint chaplain, and that was the odd man out. Uh, especially coming so shortly on the heels of all kinds of anti-polygamy legislation and opposition to the Latter-day Saints, the, the United States was still extremely anti-Mormon. There's all, all kinds of anti-Mormon sentiment even today, but in the 19-teens during World War I, it was tough to be a Latter-day Saint. B.H. Roberts had actually been elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and had not been allowed to take his seat by a government that didn't feel very highly about Latter-day Saints. Well, fast forward, and now he's a chaplain, and they're not too pleased about that. Well, they're, they are pleased about the victory at the end of World War I. And so they have a huge day of thanksgiving. Uh, there's, there's some, in, the re-enthronement of freedom, right? And so here's a coronation day. Here's a, a, a day of celebration. This is just like all these psalms. Well, closer than you realize. Because at this big uh, event, this day of celebration, they have all the military men there ready to be, just rejoice and thank God for their blessings that they've, they've survived and, and the Allies won. Well, they have this event orchestrated by the chaplains, uh, and B.H. Roberts is one of them. But he's not treated like one of them. They're all, all, all the military leaders and these chaplains that are running the show are up on the stand, and they relegate B.H. Uh, Roberts to the back, kind of seat in the back somewhere. And he has no official role to play at all in the program. So he's just sitting there feeling like the odd man out when he hears his name announced. And the chaplain that was in charge and who is presenting the program announces that Elder Roberts, the Mormon chaplain, will now come and read to us 
the Thanksgiving psalm. And he steps aside to give the podium to Elder Roberts. Now, if there's one thing I learned in divinity school, it's that historical Christianity has a whole lot of history behind it. And it's a lot of history that we missed out on, for good and bad. Uh, but it also has a very deep vocabulary that we don't really learn. And so there's all kinds of you know, words and terminology and, and a view of things that Trinitarian Christianity shares, long and deep, but we're not that kind of Christianity. We are Christians, but not that kind. And so when B.H. Roberts was, heard his name and was told he's going to come up and read the Thanksgiving psalm, he thought, uh, I have no idea what the Thanksgiving psalm is. Well, I have a 1 in 150 chance. Gulp. What's he going to do? Well, he gets up because his name was announced. And, well, he has the courage to step forward. And the faith, probably some fear too, but I'm going to open my mouth and pray that it gets filled. Well, before his mouth was filled, his ear was, and he said as he walked to the podium, he, he felt, he heard an audible voice that said to him, the 100th Psalm. Now, he had no idea that the 100th Psalm was known as the Thanksgiving Psalm, but that's the one. And so he got up to the podium and he opened his Bible to the 100th Psalm and he read what we just read. Make a joyful noise. All of these seven beautiful invitations which culminate in gratitude enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Oh, that is a beautiful thanksgiving psalm. When he was done, he turned around and walked back and saw that every chaplain had their eyes on the ground and none would make eye contact with him. And he realized the whole thing had been a setup. They were trying to embarrass him. They were trying to embarrass the church. See, these Mormons, they're not Christians. They don't even know. They don't know, they don't know the Bible. Well, God does. And as we've seen... Yes, Satan knows the Psalms, and Paul knows the Psalms, and the saints know the Psalms, and Jesus knows the Psalms. Well, based on Elder Robert's experience, yes, the Spirit knows the Psalms. He knows the feeling that goes along with every single one. And when B.H. Roberts needed to know which one to channel gratitude through, the Lord whispered, the 100th. If you need help channeling whatever emotion you are feeling. If, if you want to explore the depths of the human experience and the depths of the human emotion that goes along with it, then allow the Psalms to provide the soundtrack to your life. They will allow you to search the depths and breadths and heights of your own soul. And as they do so, they will give you a glimpse into the soul of God which is good. I testify of him. I want to come boldly to that throne of grace and I want to make a joyful noise. I do want to sing the song of redeeming love. 
and the Psalms allow me to do every, to do just that. It allows me to sing to him. And in a beautiful way, it allows me to sing right alongside him. Voices mingling, songs of praise to a God of goodness, a God of grace.